0: Forty here, so was under the weather last week and uh, a little slow coming back. I don't know about you, but when I get sick, it's it's really a humbling experience. And I, I was reading recently about how depression has its evolutionary benefits. So depression, or just feeling introspective or sad, it, uh, it enables you to take time from acting and start thinking about the consequences of your deeds. So there's certainly a time to act, but there's also a time to stop acting. And so of your, when you're sick, you can just pause, pause your life. And you can think about the efforts that you're making and, and are they worth it, <laughs> right? So while I've been sick, I've been watching some videos on the history of internet blood sports, and there's just so much cringe on there, right? There's just so much nonsense in, in the history of internet uh, blood sports. I mean, I can't think of anyone who comes across really well. I think Mr. Medica comes across pretty well. I, I don't think Mr. Medica was at all damaged by internet blood sports, but everyone else, I think, was substantially damaged. Now, uh, JF garapi was probably the least damaged uh, of the remainders, but I don't think most people would want J.F. P.'s life in, in remote uh, Canada, you know, on the on the margins of of polite society, and then I don't think Richard Spence was ever humiliated in internet blood sports, but ironically, his success in internet blood sports fueled his megalomania. And so, it's it's really easy when you're doing something like this, you get a little applause or a lot of applause, and you immediately start having an exaggerated sense of your own wisdom, your own capabilities, your own talent and and your desire for attention obviously goes up so uh, i've been waiting for several days to to do a stream because i just frankly i didn't want any attention <laughs> i just wanted to lay low and so you need you need sub desire for attention some de- some brashness some some you know desire for for you know other people to admire you to to do a live stream or you can tap in to a desire to share some thoughts and to possibly be a benefit to some people. But yeah, I've had a few days just thinking things through, contemplating, assessing, you know, realizing how I've misjudged, you know, this or that, just abstaining from action. And there's there's a verse in the Bible, I think it comes from the Psalms. I think it's Psalms forty six. It says, Be quiet and know that I am God. And I've been on a kick the last few years of looking for secular equivalents to religious statements because I don't know about you, but I can become inured to religion. Like I can hear so much talk about God and salvation and love and and Torah that sometimes I hit need different language for it to become fresh and real to me. So I started substituting, and I got this from Herb K, the word reality for God. And so instead of like, stopping and knowing knowing that I am God, as the psalm says, how about stopping and accepting reality? I, I like that. That that speaks to me. I need need that that fresh approach. So just stop and accept reality. And the reality is what I'm doing right now is like incredibly you know, incredibly dangerous for, for my, my well being because it is so easy to have an exaggerated sense of your own wisdom and talents and and abilities. I have an exaggerated sense of the importance that that it, that people should hear what you have to say. There are so many pulls to reveal things in a live stream that you wouldn't reveal to people in face to face when you when you're getting visual cues. Uh, There's so many attractions to be far more impulsive and reckless and shocking and self-centered and self-absorbed when when you're
1: doing a, stuff online. And,
0: Quiet and move to Australia so i 'm sure for many people the the idea of you know be quiet and know that i 'm God that 's awesome right? that just rocks their world and then for other people they 've had so much God talk that they 're renewed to it, so maybe be quiet and accept reality and then for other people, you know, be quiet and just move to Australia or be quiet and get a new job or be quiet and go back to school or Uh, Be quiet and clean up your side of the street and make amends to people you've you've damaged.
1: So I've been reading a lot of books past year by Alan V. Horwitz. Use and that dominates the the mental health field.
0: So he, he makes the great point in his 2007 book, "The Loss of Sadness: How Psychiatry Transformed Normal Sorrow into Depressive Disorder," that there are plenty of times when the normal, natural, and healthy human reaction is to feel sad. The negative events in your life. Let's say you lose a job. Let's say you're expecting income that did not come in. Let's say you lose a relationship. You, someone close to you dies, your wife has an affair, the normal, natural, healthy response to these kind of setbacks is to feel sad and to fulfill all the diagnostic and statistical measures for major depressive disorder. Right? He writes, the psychiatric diagnosis of major depression is based on the assumption that symptoms alone can indicate that there is a disorder. This assumption allows normal responses to stresses to be mischaracterized as symptoms of disorder. Right, so a lot of things that are diagnosed as psychiatric illnesses are actually healthy and appropriate responses to setbacks in life. Now you're probably wondering, forty, you've been talking for about five minutes, and you haven't played anything from Decoding the Gurus. Edition
2: of Decoding the Gurus. For people who don't know, this is where we take. The gurus that we have recently decoded and we supplemented with a highly scientific enterprise of putting them into our trademarked gurometer system, scoring them according to alchemical and scientific procedures and quantify their guru essence, extract it into a single number, a numerical score of gurusity if you will. So if this is the first time that you've joined us for this exciting adventure. Get ready for entirely subjective numbers to be thrown around for a whole bunch of categories that we consider quintessential to our gurus. Uh, yes. Good evening, Matt. Good evening, Chris. It's late here, but
3: I'm ready. I'm ready to crank.
0: Yeah. So this is my new favorite uh, podcast by a couple of centre-left academics. One guy's from Northern Ireland. You can hear his accent, but anthropologist who lives in Japan. And then the other guy is a professor of psychology at the University of Central Queensland. And part of uh, my desire to get in touch with reality is coming from looking at the, the history of internet blood sports and just just seeing how deleterious it was for virtually everyone but Mr. Medica. I can't, I can't point to many uh, downsides, but Mr. Medica, I think he was chagrined by being doxed. I don't think uh, he was very happy about that. But I was really impressed with how Medica, in very fiery, intense debates, such as with Ethan Ralph last week, still managed to keep his cool and not say anything stupid. The more you turn up the temperature, like the more intensity in, in an interaction, even if it's just an online argument, the more likely you are to say things that you will regret. <laughs> and I was just really impressed by how Medica doesn't, doesn't say things that uh, that he has reason to to regret. But uh, I, I noticed a lot of conversation in my corner of the internet about, you know, how I'm done with COVID, I'm over COVID, I'm sick of COVID. Well, your feelings about COVID, right? They don't have, they don't change the nature of reality. And so what's most important is not, am I done with COVID, but is COVID done with us? Now it's possible that COVID and the coronavirus from here only mutates and evolves to be less deadly. That, that's certainly possible. But whatever direction COVID takes, our feelings about it are going to shift it. And so Michael Hildzik is a left-wing columnist in the LA Times, but I often agree with him. And he has a column here this week. These pundits and politicians say they're done with COVID, but COVID's not done with us. Like You may be done with gravity. Gravity is not done with you. You may be done with monogamy, but when you stray outside of monogamy, there are certain consequences. You may be done with your job, but unless you get another source of income, you'd be reckless to just quit it. Right? You may be done with your wife. You may be done with your rabbi, right? But uh, however fed up you feel, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that you should act on those feelings. Right, people are desperate to get back to normal life. People are fed of restrictions. You may be fed up with your boss. You may be fed up with your wife. But uh, staying in a relationship with your wife and continuing to work for a boss may well be the wisest and most realistic option for you, no matter how how fed up you feel. So we've got all these elite commentators and politicians declaring that COVID is over. But uh, for millions of Americans, it is not nearly over. Sixty-seven thousand Americans died of COVID last month, and according to the to the academic research that I've seen, the general academic consensus seems to be that for every reported case of a COVID death, there are three point five as many unreported cases of COVID death. So, in, in all reality, uh, America suffered three million deaths. probably at 3 million die unofficially. And then we've got the hundreds of thousands who are possibly suffering from whatever is long COVID. Their health appears to be compromised. Myocarditis seems to be a common symptom. And so many people, their lives are going to be damaged for the rest of their life, perhaps, or for a while by by COVID. So it's just jarring to hear all these commentators say, it's over, put the mask away. Same time, you have tens of thousands of people dying There's a thousand people being out of work because they're sick or their kids are sick and they're wondering how to pay the rent, right? Last month, 67,000 dead Americans. That's more than all the American deaths in the Vietnam War, right? The daily average of new deaths this month alone, 3,164, is more than the total number of deaths recorded in the 9-11 attacks.
3: Make up the gorometer, get those numbers in there, give
2: it a big spin. And we're we're going to quantify two gurus simultaneously. It's never been done, Matt. It's never been <laughs> done. <laughs> we're um, not afraid to
3: tread new ground on this podcast. Yeah. We can handle it. It's it's a robust device.
2: It is. It's Peter McCulloch and Robert Malone, the recent guests of Joe Rogan, who we looked at and found to be pretty much anti-vaccine uh, misinformation specialists, but whatever your views on them may be, there is one thing that we didn't emphasize on the original episode that we, we just wanted to cover um, before we start the grommeter because I think it, it bears highlighting and there was so much nonsense. We were kind of overloaded that I think it would be useful just to play one clip and and to highlight what they are actually claiming occurred.
4: If you wanna see the Johns Hopkins planning seminar called the Spars pandemic in 2017, where they had a symposium, people showed up, they wrote up their symposium findings, they published this. It says it's gonna be a coronavirus. It's gonna be related to MERS and SARS. It's gonna come over here to the United States. It's gonna shut down cities and frighten people. There's gonna be confusion regarding a drug hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. And we're going to utilize all that in order to railroad the population into mass vaccination. It's laid out in the Johns Hopkins Spars pandemic training seminar. The only thing that got wrong was the year. They said it was going to be 2025. Instead, it landed a few years early.
3: But that wasn't the worst clip I heard from McCulloch. That was a bad one.
2: But the, the point that I think that clip highlights it a bit better that like what they are alleging this, I, actually it's Peter McCulloch, not Robert Malone, these particular clips, but they're highlighting that the whole thing was planned. And in particular, they want to highlight this training exercise that Johns Hopkins had, a kind of pandemic planning preparation exercise. And because they talked about a potential coronavirus and kind of game planned how to respond to it, that that shows that this is not a natural virus, right? This is a Thing which the globalists are releasing?
0: Yeah, I think there are probably you know a lot of great critiques of the conventional wisdom and the WHO and the CDC, but uh they're not coming from doctors Malone and mccullough right? These guys have been ridiculous
2: in order to induce their vaccination campaign, and mm. just to highlight that that's that's Alex Jones level conspiracies, right? This is not people who are just saying, "Oh, we need more safety data." on uh, vaccines. It's people claiming that the pandemic was planned, that the vaccines are a social control mechanism, and that they have these documents to show it. And that's exactly what Alex Jones says. And
0: so when, by, by many measures, I was, you know, failing in my life Uh, over over the past uh, two decades do you think I wanted to walk around and think oh I'm failing in my life you know I'm not married I'm failing in my life I haven't had kids I'm failing in my life I don't have any money I'm failing in my life I'm not you know building a lucrative and rewarding and respectable career do you think I wanted to think about oh I'm failing in my life I'm not adequately preparing for retirement I think I wanted to think about oh there are these, you know, various people that I've damaged and I haven't made amends to so them. No, I didn't want to think about that. Instead, I wanted to kind of twist my my view of life so that I could think about myself as, you know, a brave, brave truth teller. And I, I had, you know, I despised the, the careerists. I despised the normies. I was smarter than the normies. I could just, you know, I could pierce through. The confusion and the nonsense that uh, constituted conventional wisdom. And I was sharper and better than the normies. And now at at age 55, I'm becoming increasingly respectful of the normies. (laughs) You know, at at age 55, I'm becoming more keenly aware of how much my ambition exceeds my talent. Now, I can't remember the last time that I wrote something that I was proud of. And, And to do a live stream requires such confidence. And to do it well requires you know, really strongly believing that what you're saying is important and, and true. It requires a, a brashness. And it's so much easier when you have this feeling of you know, how wonderful you are, how smart you are, and how you're going to provide people with you know, better insights than the CBS Evening News or the New York Times. But you got to ha- get into some feeling of, you know, look at me, admire me, and some probably exaggerated sense of your own qualities and attainments. But then once you get into that exaggerated sense, you look like an idiot, like many of the people who participated in internet blood sports. Like, I'm just thinking about uh, meetings that I've had over the past two weeks where I just completely misread what happened. Like, How on earth did I get so out of touch you know, with reality? Like, How did virtually everyone who participated in internet blood sports in a big way, how did they all get out of touch with reality? How did they end up all getting severely damaged by it, you know, looking like fools. Now and and how much was I another internet blood sports bozo? Right? I am increasingly seeing that the life from the normie perspective that there's a lot more wisdom there, but I didn't want to think you know, about how I was failing through through normal assessments. I just wanted to think about I'm the hero, right? We we all we all want to feel like we're the heroes of our own story. I'm re-listening to this excellent course Effective Communication Skills by Dalton Kehoe.
4: Lecture 10, Protecting the Self in Face-to-Face Talk.
5: Hi, and welcome to Lecture 10. The potential to undermine our self and our self-worth exists side by side with others' positive acceptance of us in every moment we talk. In fact, people have not given each other what they want, the acceptance of each other's thoughts and acceptance as individuals, so many times over the millennia of human existence that as a part of the cultural learning of every child, there is passed on by observation and imitation a series of conscious defenses that they can use.
0: Right, when you're failing, when you're screwing up, when you're blowing it, when you're unnecessarily hurting other people, when you're alienating people, do you want to think about that? No, you want to reframe what's going on so that you're the hero. All
1: right, let's have a look at the chat.
0: Be quiet and fix your microphone, says Elliot Blatt. Uh, Glib Medley says, the last two years COVID peaked at the end of January, assuming means this year, no matter what level of intrusion on liberties governments imposed. Well, uh, COVID COVID and government intrusions on liberty. So, interesting. Most of my my conservative friends think that freedom is the ultimate value. And to me, freedom is just one value among many. Sometimes freedom is number one value, plenty of times. Freedom only number seven value, sir. What's more important is order. I've been reading the Oxford Companion of Carl Schmitt, and uh, it calls him the the professor of order. Right, a scholar of order. Carl Schmidt. most people on the right, they tend to be obsessed with order and safety because we, we see the human, human animal as inherently dangerous. Okay. Have a look at the chat. Everyone will get COVID. Everyone will, we will be depleted of all those who are susceptible, the unvaxxed heavy, the old sick folks, that is assured. Possibly the lab leak is the
1: cause. When he became such a company man,
0: he became such a company man when he realized what an idiot he was in a lot of things, when he realized that uh, the intellectual respect he was according to people uh, was overdone. For example, when the Kafnis critique came out and all these people who'd based their worldview on Kevin McDonald's thought, such as uh, Greg Johnson and Richard Spencer, then wouldn't even engage with, with the Kaffner's critique. When I, when I saw how pathetic the alt-right response was to the Kaffner's critique, I thought, okay, the, these people aren't nearly as as smart and, and wise as they, they initially sounded to me. Forty was always a company man. The alt-right was but a mere fetish. Lib Medley, you are the king of the commentators. You are sharp, sharp, sharp. Right. Yeah, I, I like excitement. And, uh, you know, when the, the distant right was exciting, I, l- I loved to talk about the distant right. When it became depressing, I didn't want to talk about it anymore. When the porn industry was exciting, I loved to talk about it. When the porn industry became depressing, I didn't want to talk about it anymore. When Seventh Adventism was exciting, I wanted to talk about Seventh Adventism. But when it became depressing and boring, I didn't want to talk about it anymore. I, I think I lack the Zisfleisch, the, the Yiddish word for just sticking down, sitting down, and working hard in in one direction. I tend to get bored easily. If I'm not getting the attention that I crave, I just you know, move on to some other topic. I am an intellectual gigolo, you know, falling in love with every beautiful idea that comes along, but ultimately staying loyal to none. Elliot Blatt says, Why can't we have a collegial conversation? about covid numbers why must the sanity and motives be questioned for everyone who holds a disparate opinion i don't think that sanity and motives are questioned for everyone who holds a disparate opinion Uh, but uh, to have a collegial conversation about these numbers that needs to begin with uh research right not just a bunch of tweets right people a lot of people base their their views of the world and their views on COVID and lockdown policies based on tweets or, or videos, right? To have a collegial conversation, it needs to be based on something much more substantive, such as the most important scientific papers, that uh, the most influential, the most discussed uh, papers about the topic. I think that's that's where a conversation should begin. OMI means mass deaths. An inoculation likely of the healthy. OMI is an arm injection through the air. Cow pucks, cowpox to the healthy and end to the unvaxed, Unhealthy. 90% functional virus versus 50% normally. Was the science rushed on the COVID? Yes. Science is constantly adjusting. Science is, is in, in states of emergency, such as COVID, is, is often rushed.
1: Uh, luckily, it's usually self-correcting.
0: Mr. Whitemail says, Luke, you'll always be my hero. Ralph booted from Cozy TV by Nick Fuentes. Wow. Um,
1: Yeah. Uh, Ralph has, has seemed to have gone into, Ethan Ralph seemed to have gone into a tailspin. Freedom of your own
0: bloodstream should be in the Constitution maybe but your bloodstream affects other people has the capacity to affect other people so if you can transmit deadly disease to other people to me that puts limits on your freedom so there are limits on all freedoms there are limits on what you can do with guns and what you can do with cars there always have to be limits because freedom is just one moral value amidst a constellation of value that's word for word what nick fuentes says that order is above liberty well sometimes Order is above liberty, and sometimes liberty is more important than order. Generally speaking, yeah, I believe that order
1: is more important than liberty. Maybe,
5: well, it's so situational. To protect their self-esteem when reality stings. So in this lecture, we will review the common types of defenses and how we use them to respond to a reality that may threaten our sense of self. We're also going to review the clever ways we speak emotionally to get what we need indirectly while trying to avoid putting our self-esteem at risk. Basically, we're going to talk about how we converse about everyday topics while avoiding situations where our conversational face is not supported. Our self-esteem is diminished, and we risk feeling the psychic pains of embarrassment, shame, or guilt.
0: Yeah, what do you do to get away from... Failure, like when you failed, when you royally screwed up, like what's your go-to? You think about oh, all the things you've done right. You you concentrate on ways that you're smarter than other people. That's what I do. My mind automatically starts working in ways that I can see myself as superior to other people. Like that's how I shore up my sense of self. Or if I can't figure out how I'm superior to other people, my mind starts working to think about how how I'm superior to where I was, you know, last month or last year or five years ago or 10 years ago. So if I can't think of ways that I'm better than other people, my mind automatically starts thinking about, oh yeah, well, at least I'm better than I used to be.
5: Now to do that, we have to take a little step back at the turn of the century again. You remember while Mead was inventing his cognitive model of the conscious self, the I and the me at the turn of the century, it turns out Freud had already invented a tripartite model of the personality. He called its constituent elements the id, ego, and superego.
0: As locked in an iron cage. At times. I mean, we're all girded by reality. We're all limited by by gravity. Uh, so I think that we're all stuck in an iron cage together is a particularly useful metaphor for international relations. But there, I think my favorite dream, like the dream that... that Consistently makes me happy, but uh, I think it's been years since I've had this dream. Is that I'm floating away on a hot air balloon? I think the last one I floated away all the way to New Zealand. And so you know that dream of ultimate freedom—you know, floating away in a hot air balloon—I'm sure that's that's a useful metaphor. So sometimes, yeah, we're all locked in an iron cage together, and there's no way out. I think that's often the most useful metaphor, but it's a really happy metaphor to think about. Oh, floating. Floating in a hot air balloon. Liberals fetishize BDSM. Conservatives fetishize adultery. Liberals value equality. Conservatives value
1: obeying the rules, says Glib.
0: Good explanation, Luke. The alt-right stuff is boring now. Wow, yeah, it is boring, isn't it? I mean, it's been, it was depressing for years and and now it's just settled into, into boring.
1: What's the column heading on the right? I can't
0: see with your video over it. Okay, so and <laughs> let's go, caller Elliot Black.
6: Blessings, bro. Blessings. I just, uh, how about I Mega wish I'd, Ditto's? Long time listener, first time caller. Sorry. <laughs> I know it's becoming. It's becoming. Sadly, I miss the days when there was a variety of callers. You know, I, yes. I feel like I'm. I'm just a placeholder for the old team. You know.
0: Oh yeah, those are good times.
6: Remember those are good days, Luke. I think yeah, you're... I mean,
0: and it's so sad because we're none of us are nearly as good on our own as we were collectively. Like that's right. Like Godwood is fine, but he's much better when he's got someone to bounce off of or to
6: challenge him. So yeah, we're like we're like we're like, uh, we're like atoms of uranium that needs to we need we yeah. need to bounce off each other and create a thermonuclear reaction like the old days
0: we're like porcupines (laughs) huddling together for warmth (laughs) yes but i can't i can't i can't attract the old crowd like dennis dale doesn't accept my invites uh godwin casey doesn't accept my invites uh kevin michael grace i've invited him back you know a dozen times he almost you know no one it's it's like it's like i hosted a popular party for a while, but then no one comes to my party yeah. anymore.
6: <laughs> you, thank you. <laughs> so how are you going to feel when I stop accepting your advice, Luke? <laughs> I,
0: I'm, I'm going to soldier on. Luckily, my primary sense of worth does not depend on uh, the number mm. of viewers that I get. I mean, it does feel great to get, you know, big viewership, make money. But mm. uh, no, I, soldier well, I, on.
6: I, I think viewers get viewers, right? Then, yeah. you know, the more you have, then the, yeah. the more reactions, the livelier the chat. And then the attraction, you know, there's the the chat becomes the attraction. So in those old yes. days, the track, the chat itself was worth the price of admission, which is of course <laughs> zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it,
0: it's a place to come and and you know talk to interesting, fun people. Perhaps. Yeah.
6: But yeah, but your your commentary you have it seems a little tinged with regret, Luke. You think you think this is just a passing thing? This is a little hangover from the old cocoa or by cocoa I mean COVID. Or...
0: Uh no, no, I think it, it deals with reality. like how could I, you know, not not have some regrets or like when you, you feel bad when things aren't going your way. And then when you things aren't going your way and you feel bad, it's often a good idea to stop. Reduce the number of actions that you're taking. Step away Mm. from any franticness, and Mm. and reflect and think. Okay, I took X, Y, Z actions, and I got the following results. I don't like those results. Let me let me refocus my attention.
6: So, can I give you my diagnosis? Yes. Hypothetical. I think you can't decide whether or not you want to be an entertainer or you want to be a serious journalist. You want to walk. You want you want a foot in both, in uh, sort of both, both pies or both paths. And one, each one sort of uh, counter signals the other. So if people can't roll with this sort of serious 40, playful 40 thing, each of those camps kind of falls away. It's only very few that can sort of roll with your um, lack of better word, uh, schizophrenia
0: yeah no, that that's good because I do like to get down in the muck you know and yeah. see the see the mud flying no, yeah. i do, I do enjoy the blood spots um on the other hand they 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 also repel me and disturb me and disgust me and frighten me and make me feel you know, cringy
6: well uh, so here's i i this is what I've sort of always sort of said this i've chatted this I put it in today's chat but I think the blood sports attracted people that were either actively doing cocaine or formerly heavy cocaine users, or at least cocaine users. And because it was a stand-in for that type of rush, there's a certain rush involved in these sort of confrontations that don't really carry with them any risk of physical retribution.
0: That's good. Yeah, that makes sense.
6: So, I don't know. You you've heard the term "dry drunk," haven't you? Yes. Yeah. So, I think this the live streaming community has a lot, a lot of dry drunks in it.
0: So, so who do you think came out of internet Bloodsports undamaged, or even, or even ahead of the game, if if anyone?
6: Well, like you say, I mean, Metacore is really. He is excellent. I mean, and he has very serious health problems himself. I'm sure you've learned, and uh, it's just amazing how his his voice, though, sounds so strong, yes, and clear. And I wouldn't, I'd never guess that he had serious health problems, right? Um, so um, I just got a message. From work, sorry. So uh, I was I was very sad to learn that. Um, uh, So there was times when I thought uh, Medicare was a little bit too vicious um, And unfair in some of his criticism But his I did listen to that stream with him With uh, Ethan Ralph in Medicare And how well composed he was And he was actually very kind to Ralph In a certain way He was basically uh, Playing a fatherly role uh, For Ethan or is it Ralph or Ethan? He goes oh. by both. Oh. Okay, all right. People call him both. So, anyway, I thought he was uh, uh, incredibly um, mature, and uh, actually, I think did Ralph a bit of good. I think Ralph may come away from that a little bit more intras- uh, introspective, which is what he desperately needs to do.
0: Yeah, I think uh, Medica and and Red Bar, they're, they're both. Uh, they're both uh, pretty well situated in reality.
6: Yeah, Red Bar too. I'm you know, coincidentally also has very serious health. problems. Yes, and I can't. You can't but help, but think if that's what it takes to get people to become a lot more mature in their outlook.
0: Yeah, I I think it's probably not a coincidence that people who who struggle with with serious health problems, it probably does have an effect of situating them more in reality. It makes it more difficult to live in delusion.
6: Yeah. So uh, that is probably the saddest commentary. You know, youth is wasted on the young, they say. (laughs) Now, go ahead. ahead. No, I lost the thought. Go ahead. Oh, so I was just thinking, I can't think
0: of any times or many times when Richard Spencer got humiliated on internet blood sports, but the humiliation came from the consequences of internet blood sports or the, the, the real, when he tried to take internet blood sports into real life.
6: Yeah. He's I, as a guy I can never figure out, you know, he has a certain chameleon quality because um, he is, you know, as you've noticed, he's very intelligent He's very well educated and he has a certain uh, playfulness that I think is, I think is is an attractive quality, you know, and he does sort of keep your attention, but he will sort of seemingly turn your back on you at at the second that you're not, uh, don't support his current direction, you know.
0: And uh, Nick Fuentes, uh, in some senses, was, became the most successful from Internet blood sports. He, he got over 50,000 live viewers for his uh, election night stream. Like he he right. built a, a larger audience than anyone else. But I don't think many people would like the, the real-life consequences that he suffered.
6: No, that's true. And incidentally, I don't know if you know this, but um, way back when, this could be three years or more, um, Ralph and Fuentes got in a ferocious fight on, I think, JF stream. I think JF was in the in between it all. Uh, this was just right around the per- period where uh, JF left Worski. So, more or less on that day or the subsequent day, right in that time period. And they, they would just trade barbs of the most vicious kind at one another. And, um... It was kind of ugly to sort of even listen in on, and then I think they just sort of made they sort of patched things up strategically just because of the optics of it all um, but it, it's just interesting uh that they both find themselves in this uh, th- these these compromised positions, but it also just shows you like you know had I been around you know had the internet had had LiveStream been around when I was in my twenties who knows what mistakes I would have made, you know, I, I, I'm just lucky that it, it all came around when I was a lot older.
0: Yeah. And, uh, Halsey English, he, I don't, I don't know if he got damaged. I don't, I'm not aware of any serious damage that he sustained from internet blood sports.
6: No, no, but he's, you know, he's in our age bracket, so
0: Right. It probably helps <laughs> uh, to be, to be older and to be married and to have kids. And to have you know a job outside of IBS,
6: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know the, that fact makes our streaming a lot less, <laughs> you know, engaging and attractive to to younger people. That's yeah. they're living when those emotions are very raw and they really want to express them and they get wrapped up in them. And, uh, so,
0: what do you say to yourself when you suffer a humiliation, a, a failure? Like I st- start trying to reframe it so that, you know, I think I've to think of ways that I'm superior to other people. Or if that fails, I think of how I'm doing better now than, than in the past. But what do you do when you suffer a failure in the humiliation? How do you how do you deal?
6: Oh, um, so usually what I do is I clench my fists really hard and then I start pacing and muttering and shouting expletives.
0: Yeah, and aside from that, I mean, do you? Do you, no. are you like me? Do you go to? Well, here I, I try to think of angles by which I'm superior. Yes.
6: Too. So I go yeah. down the list. It's sort of like the the Kubel Ross, the stages of grief. <laughs> yeah. But I, I go through them in about you know ten minutes, rather than multiple days. You know, I first look for someone else to blame. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Is there any way I could pin this on somebody else? <laughs> And then, then I finally realize that it can't be done. You know, then I say, "Is there any way that I could mitigate my own stupidity? <laughs> can I make an excuse for my stupidity? Right? Uh-huh. You know, I go through the lines, and then you know, and then it just, and then you know, it goes down the line, and finally, it's just complete contrition, <laughs> yeah. and then self-loathing. <laughs> so." that's how I deal with it. There's no, and then, and and this is why this is, this is, you know, failures, repeated failures, the failures that kind of stack up over the years. This is what ages people. This is why people always have this, this careworn look about them because they've been, uh, they've been ruminating on all their failures for so many years. It's just taking its toll on their soul, you know? And, and depending on the severity intensity of these failures, you can just look at someone's faces and face and, kind of know what they've been
0: through. Yeah, I'm struck about how my mind, you know, is just doing somersaults and and you know, just completely making a pretzel out of whatever, you know, logic or, or values that, that I swear I hold dear. Because, you know, when I need to, you know, I frame things just in a completely opposite way to try to shore up my sense of self. So for a while I felt better than other people because I was less likely to gossip. And then I started making a living from writing an internet gossip column. And so I I reframed it as I was a brave truth teller. But it's it's kind of sobering how how reckless I am with my logic and with my values, just constantly adjusting them so that I feel good about myself.
3: Yeah,
6: yeah, yeah. I mean, that is the, it is the mark of, Ultimately, once you've sort of suffered a bunch of failures and, and disappointments and so forth, and then you've owned them, um, yeah. and you know, you've know you made amends, you've taken responsibility, you've done all those things, um, the fact that you've gone through that just sort of... Um, makes you instantly trustworthy in the eyes of other people. If you're a person that can do that, yes, right? Because yes. there's a certain um, mindfulness, a certain attentiveness that you have to situations that people pick up on and then they immediately feel safe around. Versus someone like an Ethan Ralph who won't take responsibility for his actions, right? They give off this sort of restless um unpredictable vibration that people really don't trust. Yeah. So there is something, you know, there is something to be gained from from actually owning up to your mistakes. It will pay dividends in the long run, but it's, nobody wants to, you know, myself included, nobody wants to drink the bitter medicine. Yeah. We're not, we're not trained to take, well, we used to be, but the the media, you know, the culture we're in is so hedonistic. Right, that people. I, I find this very true about like the blood sports community. That it's the assumptions are all interwoven with hedonism, right? Their their measures of success aren't different from anybody else's. They're all about you know money and and uh, drugs and sex. They're all about these high intensity hedonistic experiences, and there isn't this sort of. Uh, dimension of maturity in there at all. There's no, no one has very few seem to have a, uh, you know, a critical distance on that. They're sort of, they're just living it and experiencing the uh, repercussions in real time.
0: Yeah. It is not very impressive, you know, when they, they're they boasting about you know, how big their girlfriend's breasts are. Yeah. And, uh, and I was just thinking like uh, there, there are people that I've despised because they, you know, they were, you know, blocking people on Twitter. And then, and then, I, you know, I catch myself blocking people on Twitter.
6: <laughs> uh, so, yeah, really. Uh, well, I recently unblocked some people that I had blocked on Facebook. I decided that I was going to let bygones be bygones and try to try to chalk it up to COVID hysteria and yeah. uh, give, you know, people a second chance. Um but uh hmm. i don't know it, it seems like a lot of bridges still have been burned and they're not easily reconstructed
0: yeah so what do you think about the idea that that depression or malaise or you know, heavy introspection have have an often an important and advantageous and evolutionary adaptive role to play in that you you stop frantically acting and you think about the consequences of what you've done and what you're thinking of doing and you you play out in your mind the consequences of what you're thinking of doing. And so it certainly seems to me that there's often a time to, to just pause and reflect and to stop acting and to to explore the benefits of being sad.
6: I agree 100%. I think it's the crucible uh, in which character is formed, you know? Uh, if you didn't feel, if, if doing stupid shit didn't make you feel bad, people would always be doing stupid shit and life would not re- <laughs> be livable. There would be yes. chaos. Right. So, um, but I think, you know, regret and depression, they, it, sometimes it seems like they're the same thing, but I think they're two distinct phenomena and they can feed one another, but,
0: um, well, there's, there's a thing called major depressive disorder. And so it has symptoms, but all the symptoms are healthy, appropriate responses to loss.
6: Right, right, right. Um, and then, you know, so then you have depression, antidepressant medication, and this kind of sort of hacks your body to override or not hear the signal associated with loss. Um Oh, it seems like that could like stifle somebody's maturation.
0: Oh, of course, there's got to be a downside to everything. So you know, recognizing yeah. that there's that some people get get sick from. I got to be careful here, but you know what I'm talking about. You can take a medicine that, uh, mm. let's say, is beneficial 99.9 percent of the time, but you might have a negative reaction. Or mm. some people are still alive because they didn't wear a seatbelt. So overall, seatbelts save lives, but some people wearing a seatbelt would have killed them. And so that's the, that's the random aspect of reality.
6: Right. Uh, But, okay. So depression of the lingering sort, meaning, you know, multiple months. Yeah. um, Probably not adaptive. that, That I think, that I think is sort of comes from the physical paralysis that being emotionally depressed uh, leaves you with in the beginning so it's sort of like there's a lot of toxins in your body and all the chemicals around sadness just get soaked into your tissues and they just sort of recirculate and it becomes I think I think people are okay you know it's obvious this is my own completely untested um unpeer-reviewed opinion here uh but I think there's definitely a very strong physical dimension to depression and that you physically need to move uh, to break up the stagnation that's sort of left in your body after a period of depression to really Ah. sort of break through and come through the other side, like completely have it be gone with it.
0: Yeah. I'm sure there's something to that. On the other hand, what do you think would be an appropriate and healthy reaction to, let's say you woke up and discovered you'd lost a million dollars, your complete lifetime savings are gone. You'd been, you know, ripped off in, in some fashion. You know, it, it, all, all your money was gone. What would be an appropriate and healthy response? I think you would you would feel sad. It, it, let's say there was nothing you could do about it. So, all right.
6: that's an excellent example because um, I have a similar. No, I mean, obviously not too dramatic, but. Um, years ago i made a big mistake on my taxes and it turned out that i underpaid my taxes by $7000 and i got this letter from the irs saying that i owed them $7000 and i really felt like a bullet had just entered like yes. my body you know and i i was like shaking and, uh, I couldn't sleep and cause this blew my, this completely, you know, just wrecked my world. And I thought, oh my God, uh, you know, my, my entire apple card has been upset by in a real way. And yeah, it was physically traumatic. It was physically traumatic. Yeah. So, and, and, and so, that's, so that's a so normal, it...
0: healthy reaction. I mean, it's not like you had a million dollars spare and this was just pocket change
6: right that's right it, it was a big hit it was a big hit so um
0: but if you were still moping about it 9 months later you know that that is not an adaptive reaction
6: no that's right but uh, the I, it took me about a week to get over it until it would like stop being like a my intense, first thought in the morning pain.
0: yeah yeah which seems normal i think most people in in your situation would have experienced something very similar yeah and, and it, it would be adaptive because you need that pain to to contemplate what you did so that you can learn the lesson so going forward you minimize the chances of something like that happening again
6: so i'll tell you another story so uh a few years back i uh accidentally left my car in a spot that was a temporary tow-away zone mm-hmm. and i came out and i discovered my car was gone just like vaporized, you know? And like, so, um, you know, and I'm trying I'm wondering when I finally read the signs and picture, figured out what had happened. Right. And this is like a $700 event, you know, getting your car towed, you know? Yes. And so that happened and the years go by. And then just recently I'm walking, uh, I'm walking, you know, in my neighborhood and I look over, I see my car and I see it like a piece of paper in the, uh, in the windshield wiper, you know? And immediately I go into this Pavlovian response. I start sweating. uh, Cause I'm like, I, you know, oh my God, I got another ticket. I'm so mad at myself. You know, this loathing sets in and like, you know, I'm just completely wrecked just by the sight of a piece of paper on my windshield. And I get over there, I finally get to it. And it's like, somebody had put this, like, we was Kang's propaganda in my windshield. It was just some, you know, local crusty juggler doing some you know leafleting but just the the visceral response that just seeing a piece of paper can create after you've had your car towed uh i don't know i guess you had to be there
0: no no i completely identify i had my car towed on on a friday afternoon so it it slowed up you know getting home for for the sabbath it, it you know i was out about 3 or 4 hundred dollars it was a giant waste of time it was a trauma and i've experienced the same thing seeing you know a notice on my like my first year in la i was racking up probably two hundred dollars in in parking tickets uh, each month uh, because i wasn't you know paying close enough appropriate attention to parking regulations yeah so i mean your car dies yeah i've experienced that you you have a car and it dies Uh, there's going to be a feeling of loss if that's unexpected
6: Oh yeah. Okay, a car dying. Well, well, immediately you think, well, maybe it can be remedied. So it's not quite as intensive it as it, like, just disappearing from your sight completely, like not being where you expect it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, having a car, yeah, major financial loss is is certainly a source of pain. No question about it.
0: Or let's say you are about to propose to your girlfriend. You've been mm-hmm. in a happy, healthy, seemingly relationship with her for a year and uh, you just find out that she's been having sex with your best friend. What would be a normal, healthy reaction to that? I think that would be devastating, and it would take you weeks to get over it.
6: Yeah, especially if his name was Luke Forward.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If 40 has been fingering your girl,
6: (laughs) he's digitally interfered
0: with your love life.
6: How do we get on this dismal topic? Uh,
0: Well, the the title of the stream is Be Quiet and Accept Reality. And Mm. uh, it's just variations on the theme of sometimes depressive symptoms are healthy and appropriate response to setbacks in life.
6: Right. Okay. But that is a good point there. Without these depressing events, you can't have real humor. You can't have true gallows humor you know Um, because that's the best humor you know like um, good humor is born out of real pain you know and if you don't feel that pain you can't really if if you've numbed that pain with antidepressants you can't really have a belly laugh you can't really understand a good joke
0: What about uh, Bill Bill Cosby? What do you think is his legacy? I mean, great comic. Was Maybe he, in he did the news? Some...
6: Was he in the news again or
0: I, no, I'm just thinking about the accusations against him. They seem pretty substantial. He he's apparently, you know, drugged and raped hundreds of women. On the downside, but on the upside, he was like a a pathbreaker for African Americans. He was, you know, a civil rights pioneer. He was um he did some pretty good comedy. But on the other hand, he raped hundreds of women. So, like, how would you how would you assess? Well, they seem to have documented cases of of seventy plus. So, you know, you would assume there'd be three times as many not coming forward. So, you know, how would you weigh it up? He did some good comedy, and he raped hundreds of women, and he was a civil rights pioneer and (laughs) groundbreaker.
6: comedy would really have to be very good, in my opinion. Yeah, you'd have to have really
0: good comedy to to outweigh all that raping.
6: Yeah, just he wasn't really that funny. (laughs) If he offered you a Jello shot, would you take it? No, no. no. That show though, I have to say, I never really liked it, but a lot of people really liked that show when it was on the what was it, the 80s? Yeah, is he still
0: America's dad, or do you think he's lost that? Yeah.
6: (laughs) think so but then again i've heard stuff like these these allegations were um false yeah yeah, they were me too too
0: no they they seem so overwhelmingly strong and you hear it when you go back to his comedy he's like joking about spanish fly from the 1960s and and going uh, on tv joking about spanish fly and and in the in the cosby show he could have been any doctor, but he's an O-B-G-Y-N who works in his basement.
6: Oh, my God. <laughs> I didn't remember that detail. That's amazing. <laughs> that's really close to uh, that's That's insanity.
0: There's a terrific uh, four-part what? Showtime series we need to talk about, Bill Cosby. <laughs> it's really good. It, it puts the whole career into perspective.
6: Yeah, uh, you know, he was... Um... Remember the Scooby-Doo show? The cartoon? Uh, Fat Albert? Yes, no.
0: yes, yes. Yes, Fat Albert. Yeah. Like, how how do you assess, like, on the one hand, Fat Albert, on the other hand, yeah. you rate hundreds of women? <sighs>
6: it's a tough one. You, it's you a tough a, one, isn't it? You need, like, it? a really fine calibrated, one of those, um, like, atomic scales. People really are so complicated. But he gets a pass, you know. You know, that's the thing. Um, We don't need to lament that.
0: Oh, there's another terrific... uh, When I was sick, I was watching a lot of documentaries. So there's a terrific Showtime four-part series we need to talk about Bill Cosby. Then there's another terrific series, uh, Secrets of Playboy. And this woman woman talks about... She let Hugh Hefner play with her dog, and then she walked in, and he was having sex with her dog. So... (laughs) You know, on the one hand, like this guy was another civil rights pioneer. He brought in black people to the playboy clubs. He promoted jazz music and he he promoted a new, you know, sexual ethic. You know, on the other hand, he was having sex with dogs.
6: Well, she had all that time to do something else cuz he was caring for the dog. I mean, look at it. You gotta weigh these things carefully. Oh, and all no, the all the, all the all the
0: play all the playmates who got raped. W- w- the the bunny girls at his clubs. They they never provided any security. He, he, the bunny girls would get kidnapped and and repeatedly raped over days, and then he'd send in fixes to quieten everything down. I mean, he, the the horrific toll of, of the, the sexual you know, liberation movement that, that he unleashed but in particular Playboy Enterprises is, is incredible and the relationship between him and his daughter who for a long time ran uh, Playboy Enterprises let's just say it seems weird
6: uh, you know that was very funny because I don't know maybe 10 years ago uh, Terry Gross interviewed Hugh Hefner did you happen to catch that? No so NPR Terry Gross you know the the normies
0: yes she's a terrible interviewer yeah
6: yeah but anyway um so to use modern parlance why would he be platformed on an outlet like that given that type of history this was, this wasn't known 10 years ago
0: no, he's had an incredibly sanitized uh, media, be- in part because all the rooms of the Playboy Mansion, uh, you know, all of it's got videotaped, and so he's got mm-hmm. all these leading figures in the media industry in Hollywood who he's got compromising, you know, video of.
6: Interesting. So this whole um, Epstein Island blackmail scenario is very real at the high levels.
1: Like yes. this is a yeah.
6: So to really get in the top shelf, you need to you need to protect yourself in this way. Yeah, All probably
0: right? not a good idea to you know bang, bang mm. inappropriate people at the Playboy Mansion. Have you ever been to the Playboy Mansion?
6: Oh, not in twenty years. <laughs> it's been at least twenty years.
0: <laughs> no, never. I, I uh, went you once, know, you know. I like the the swimming oh, you pool. You got
6: in. You were in. You've literally been there, huh? Yeah,
0: yeah. And Hugh came down with his girlfriends.
6: And did he say, "There's the asshole of the month"?
0: No, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Playboy was going to hire me at one point, but yeah. but then you know they talked to some people in the in the porn industry who, who gave a very negative perspective on my on my work. <laughs>
6: <laughs> that must have been a blow. Um uh,
0: uh, uh, Nick Fuentes, civil rights pioneer, but hangs out with Catboys. You know, how to assess
6: and how to assess that legacy. <laughs> yeah, what do you think about the whole cat boy thing? Do you think um shall we say uh you think Nick's into the old rough trade or what do you think? Well,
0: I I mean, I think it's fairly clear that uh, Nick is not bedeviled by his lust for women. That he has successfully overcome whatever lust for women he may have had.
6: Yeah, so do you think he's just so spiritual and pious that... um...
0: No, I don't get any vibes of genuine religiosity or spirituality from Nick. I I think, like for, for Godward too, that Christianity is a political pose... So they get to, you know, they get to advocate for a Christian state as a as a euphemism for something that that's more racial.
6: Yeah, that makes sense. that makes sense.
0: Uh, I mean, do you ever get any genuine religious or spiritual vibe from Nick Fuentes? It seems to be like a rhetorical, rhetorical pose.
6: I can see him as um, in the early days. I saw him as a actually, I could see him as a devout Catholic. I've seen. I've known Catholics with a similar sort of, I uh, guess, presentation that Nick has—a certain um, idealism. So it wasn't out of the question to me. I can't, uh, I can't say that his. No, I think his. To me, it was credible. Okay. I mean, the catboy stuff. The catboy stuff is very eye-raising, eyebrow-raising, let's say. But I could see him as being, uh, you know, a legitimate spiritual seeker. And but yes, politics does dominate his worldview for sure.
0: Right. I just don't notice any personal sacrifice that he makes on behalf of his religion. Like, what are things that he can't do or can't say uh, because of his religion? Because it doesn't appear that he, you know, experiences lust for women.
6: Well, you yourself interview point Fuentes. yes lest we forget yes. and i think your uh um your primary takeaway from the experience this was like the i think it was the night after the night of the uh jim goad uh
0: yes uh, extravaganza. same night yeah
6: <laughs> did that go all night how many hours did that stream go to you that before? went like seven hours okay did it go into like the wee hours yes
0: or- yes it, like i started at about you know seven or eight p.m and it went till about two or three a.m
6: Yeah, but I think your your takeaway from the experience of interviewing Nick was he's just a bright, happy disposition or something like that. He made me feel happy. Yes, and isn't that one of the gifts of the spirit? Isn't that the gift? Just
0: it it is a potential gift of the spirit, but I don't I don't see or detect that Nick would be any less happy. Like there are plenty of happy secular people. So just because someone's happy, and that doesn't mean that they're experiencing the gifts of the spirit.
6: Yeah. Well, let's just say, I mean, politics is ultimately a dirty business. And I think the longer you're in it, it it just has to contaminate you. It just has to, um, it has to make you more cynical because just the nature of the game, because you not only have external enemies, but you have internal enemies that you have to fight off. You know, you have your own team members angling for you to who want to replace you. You know, even at the small uh, Lilliputian stakes that YouTube um, Bloodsports is, it's still a political game. And, uh, you know, people want to knock you off. And so you have to look askance at a lot of people. You have to do your homework and, you know, watch your back. So that attitude, that suspicious attitude is... Completely um, diametrically opposed to like the spiritual attitude.
0: Uh, maybe I mean, for example, the the open spiritual attitude, as as I see it, is usually manifested within your own community, and plenty of religious people are not fools. So, for example, my father was never taken by a scam. My father was, you know, had a, a strong, skeptical, suspicious uh, tenor. And and I never saw him get, get taken. And he, he was he was he was a very religious man. For example, I had a friend who was a professor at UCLA and I formed this close friendship with the guy. And when my father found out that this guy was sixty five and never married, he immediately assumed the guy was gay. And I said, No, no, blah, blah, blah. Well it turned out, yeah. you know, the guy asked me for a blowjob. <laughs> so my dad yes. saw that years before I did. Yeah. He offered me a blowjob. I want to be fair to him. He didn't ask me to give him one. He offered me one.
6: Well, that was kind of him.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's a much generous. higher, higher madraga. That's a much higher yeah. level, spiritual level yeah. to, to offer a blowjob rather than to request one.
6: Just exactly, it's better to give than to receive. <laughs> so, uh, did you? Would you be to get on the phone your father and tell him what happened?
0: I don't think I did. I think I was kind of embarrassed. Oh, another thing, like I used to run uh, marathons when I was age 12. And so the marathons would usually be two, three, four hours drive away. And so I'd ride, you know, with with some dudes, you know, get in their car. And my father would not let me stay at one guy's house um, overnight, a guy who was a bachelor. Uh, So Hmm. so I, I remember that. Now, I never heard anything negative about the guy. He eventually got married and, you know, let a upstanding life so he never you know did anything wrong but yeah my father did you know watch out when i was when i'd go away for a race you know my parents would you know know who i was going with so i never never went away alone with an older man to you know go to a marathon
6: interesting so your father had a very keen keen understanding he was not yes he
0: was nobody's fool (laughs) like he was much more in reality than than i have been He was uh, much less gullible than I have been.
6: So where did you, where did, I forget? where in the church? I mean, he was pretty high up in the church, was he not? He was like a
0: rock star. So in the seventh Adventist church, the preachers are the rock stars. And he was Mm -hmm. one of the premier preachers. And he was also a theologian. He had two PhDs. Mm -hmm. So he had both scholarly uh, and popular credentials.
6: Now, how is it organized? So is...
0: It's hierarchical. So there's a general conference at the top and a general conference president, and they make the decisions that are then uh, go to the worldwide church.
6: So, um, so like every country has a representative of the UN or something? Or well, they, they, yeah, no, there, there, a, there, no are, there are party, divisions right? like there's the there's
0: Australasian no. division, which is South Asia, Australia, New Zealand, okay. North American division, South American division.
6: But there's no clergy like the scholars. Of. There's no formal hierarchy. There's a... Yeah, there is a formal hierarchy. Uh,
0: there's a general conference with a president akin to a pope at the top.
6: That, but these are elected positions, right? Within...
0: No, they're not. Well, there's some election, but it's not a democracy. The, the members of the church aren't, aren't uh, voting for you.
6: Okay. Yeah, so, but... So how are these people uh, designated then? I don't want to a out on this, I'm just curious. We don't have to talk about this.
0: <laughs> yeah, the, Never mind. the The best book on this is uh Seeking a Sanctuary. So the, the terrific uh, uh terrific book by two ex Adventists. Okay. Or, uh,
6: so but so your father was sort of uh like a Billy Graham type figure uh within the Seventh day Adventists. Would that be fair to yes, say? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay.
0: But uh he yeah. alienated a lot of people because he would say very provocative things.
6: So what was the key, if, if it's a painful, zone, don't, don't have to talk about it, but what was the key theological point where he uh, departed from, which caused this schism?
0: Yeah, so you know how cults make predictions about the end of the world? And so yeah. the, the Millerite movement in the 1840s, they predicted the end of the world in, I think, 1844 on, on Yom Kippur 1844. And so that day came and went and the world didn't end. So this cult had to reinterpret. So there was this uh, young woman who claimed that she got a vision and her vision just happened to coincide what the leaders of this cult movement had decided had really happened. And so the cult movement then developed a whole theology saying that in 1844, uh, Jesus did something in the heavenly sanctuary, moved from the holy to the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary to inaugurate the final work of judging the saints And so, the Adventist Church believed that something, you know, of divine cosmic significance happened on 1844, and that was the whole unique basis for the church, and my father denied like that central doctrine of chosenness.
6: Okay, so he dissented from that view as a cope. He said, whoa, this is a cope, and for this he was ostracized, or at least... Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. he tried to, he got two PhDs, and, and when people get that secular education... You know, they start trying to rationalize. So religions yeah. become steadily more rational. And as as the world loses mystery, because when you rationalize everything, the world loses mystery. Fewer mm-hmm. things are a mystery now than 50 years ago and 100 years ago and 300 years ago and 1,000 years ago. So the world steadily lost mystery over the past 1,000 years. And as the world steadily loses mystery, it steadily loses religiosity. And so my father was, you know, rationalizing a religion but he was he was also taking away the mystery of it.
6: That makes sense. Now, this woman that had the vision, was this Ellen White? Yes. Okay. I told you my Ellen White story, right? I'm not sure. I used to work in the building. She, she was from Portland, Maine. She lived in Portland, Maine. And I lived in Portland, Maine briefly. And I worked at a health food store in Portland, Maine. Inside the building that was once the school in which ellen white had her religious epiphany about you know i don't know what what the epiphany was but she really became a strong figure in the church after that she be so but i was in that i used to work in that very building wow did you feel did you feel a, a vibe well the building was actually very beautiful in its own sort of austere way it was just a big brick square building but it had this elegance about it it was a very nice building It's 155 Bracket Street. So you can Google it and take a picture, uh, get a gander at it if you want. But um, it used to be a school. And uh, it was, you know, old-ish, you know. um, Maybe, you know, 150 years old at the time. I don't know. When was her her vision? It was like 18 something? Oh, she had
0: them whenever the church needed them. So the church would reach a consensus on something and then she'd have a vision that would uh, ratify, you know, that God in heaven has approved of this church decision.
6: Okay, and it's, it's very funny that they they needed a woman to have the, billet, the vision, so it just didn't seem like a bureaucratic decision. It had to be divinely inspired. And She was the vessel through which.
0: Yeah, she was the vessel. There aren't there aren't many you know Western religions founded essentially by women, so it's one of the rare ones. Yeah. And it's very so convenient that, you know, that she would have these visions, you know, just after the church elders decided something. Sorry, go ahead.
6: Well, I grew you know, I grew up, my early days were in New England, and New England still had a lot of uh, little small sects, like shakers. You know what the shakers are? Yes. Okay. So a lot of small Protestant sects, and there would be, uh, I think, uh, there were other ones, too. Seventh-day Adventists, and then the... Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, I never could keep all of these straight. There was Quaker, there were Quakers. So all the different denominations were very hard for a kid to parse through. I well, that,
0: that's, that's one of the, the problems with religion is that religion looks absurd at best and, and you know, downright satanic and evil at worst, unless you are mm-hmm. essentially raised in it. I, yeah. from, from an outside perspective, religion at best seems silly.
6: Right. Right. Um but uh Shakers, you know, they made uh this furniture. They old school hand tools, they would make furniture by hand, and it's some of the most prized antiques you can find in America, an original shaker. Furniture. Yeah, their the, the
0: theology may have been suspect, but their furniture was not.
6: <laughs> That's <laughs> right, it was sound. It oh. was sound. <laughs> Because, you know, they were doing all that shaking and had to withstand all of the shaking and gyrating that the parishioners uh, enjoyed during their sermon sessions. <clears throat> anyway, sorry for this digression. So uh, what do you think about this? I, so I saw a thread. Uh, just, it just came across. <laughs> so, oh, OK. Someone we know, I won't name him. Uh he is putting forth the idea that Colin Liddell is a Mossad operative. (laughs) Do you think this is true?
0: Um, I'm skeptical.
6: (laughs) I was skeptical as well, but given who it came from, I was very surprised uh, that someone put out an idea like that. I just said, wow, this is some weird stuff. And this is somebody that um, has a PhD, shall we? So I'm very surprised when, People with advanced degrees like that could say things that are so dumb. Anyway.
0: Okay, Speaking. man. Speaking. Okay. Good to talk All to right. you.
6: All right.
5: Good talk. Uh, talk to you later. All
6: right. Blessings. Bye. Blessings. Blessings. Bye.
5: And superego. In his model, the self is powered by the in's unconscious impulses and emotions. The drive for immediate satisfaction and gratification. Got to get it done now. Babies actually can't help themselves. And society's efforts to suppress these impulses as the child is socialized, the superego. In the process of being socialized, society's values are internalized by the child. A conscience and an ego ideal develop out of parental instruction.
0: Okay, this is Dalton Kehoe from the great courses, Effective Communication Skills. Uh, Bruce says in the chat, our appreciation for God has receded in conjunction with our inability to watch the sky at night. And uh, the chat suggests that Nick Fuentes is simply saving himself for the right woman. And Spiritual says, Father Ford seems rather rigid, rigidly principled and very erudite. Yes, my father was a smarter man than me. And yes, quite erudite, very skilled. As well as a
5: sense of the guilt and shame when parents punish behavior that doesn't live up to the values they are trying to instill this ideal self and the superego represents the larger All
0: right a question from the chat uh, do the Kohanim, name the, the Jewish priest know secret names of God which then can be used to control people and perform miracles well according to according to legend yes but I'm not sure that we have peer-reviewed you know academic studies uh, validating this
5: Larger social order inside the child's mind as well as the proper behavior required by society to limit the impulses of the id. Now, how do these pressures get managed? Through the ego, which operates on the reality principle. The child thinks, listen, I really want what I want right now, but I've found in the past that when I demanded it, I got smacked. So I'm going to be real here. I'm not going to ask, or I'll find a different way to ask. And the social order, of course, is reinforced. Now, this sounds like Mead's notion of role-taking and self-management, and it is. Remember, his model also focused on the conscious part of the self. However, unlike Meade's kind of debating society approach between the I and the me, Freud's self is portrayed as a kind of emotional pressure cooker.
0: Okay, uh, Art Bell said something very nice in the chat. He says, Luke's shows are special. They are more rare. KMG is the daily worker grinding away, farming the outrage, hand-selecting the zany world madness. Maybe not even one Zero Hedge article discussed by Ford. Yeah, I don't really promote a lot of uh, rage porn and uh, don't get a lot of my information from Zero Hedge. Imagine Chairman Enoch oiling up Stryker and then disappearing into the barn for a few hours. Look, guys can oil each other up and disappear into a barn for a few hours, and doesn't mean that anything gay is happening. Like they might be just going in there to read the comp. Right? Uh, why can't uh, Why can't the distant right YouTubers get together and do shows? Like, what is it about us that makes it difficult, verging on the impossible, for us to consistently work with others? Like, why did we all splinter up, go our separate ways? When me on my own, Godward on his own, Kevin on his own, Dennis Dale on his own, uh, Otto Paul on his own, all all us dissidents, we're not nearly as compelling, entertaining, provocative. Uh, we're not. We're not nearly as useful not nearly as funny uh, as when we were working together, when we are working up against each other, when we are working you know, on the same shows.
5: Kind of sad. With lots of psychic energy at play in the struggle between the id and the superego. Now we do get by on the world without always doing things the way the world wants us to. We make unthinking decisions that get us what we want right away, and sometimes we get caught. When I was finishing up my doctorate, you were late in the hours all the time, and I was working late in my office at York University. At that point, York University was still surrounded by open fields and lots of rural roads. And I wanted to get home quickly. It was 4 o'clock in the morning. It couldn't be a problem. I come to a four-way stop in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night. Now, nobody's around. So what do I do here? Do I just stop and do the formal, you know, pause and then go ahead? Nah, I'll just roll right through it. And all of a sudden, the whole world lights up. Turns out there's a cop sitting there in the dark, I don't know, doing his paperwork, something like that. And he suddenly becomes the super ego of the society, catching me up when, in fact, I thought I was getting away with something.
0: And uh, looking at the chat, Bruce says, when we witness a natural wonder, it reminds us of our finitude. Or humans used to have the most grand of natural wonders stars anywhere and everywhere at night. You don't get to see many stars in uh, Los Angeles because of the visual pollution. And uh, Spiritual Momza says that uh, Ove, Ove uh, flamed out. What, what happened to Ove? What, he, he imploded uh he's still around but shunned by a lot of people is he doing sh- is he still doing shows with uh, based takes remember that i've been playing a little bit of my father there maybe i have some of my father's uh creaturely impulses So the sociology of stress. This is Alan Horwitz, shows how non-disordered people, meaning normal people, often become distressed in contexts such as chronic subordination, so losing, loss of status, resources, and attachments, or the inability to receive valued goals. So, if you're losing at life, if you're losing status, losing resources, losing attachments, not achieving your goals, you're going to feel down. That's normal, natural, and healthy. It's not, you know, a major sickness. Evolutionary psychology indicates that distress arising in these contexts stems. Of psychological mechanisms that are responding appropriately to stressful circumstances a diagnosis of a mental disorder by contrast says these mechanisms are not functioning as they are designed to function but the american psychiatric association's dsm diagnostic and statistical manual treats both the natural results of failing at life or suffering loss in life and individual pathology as they're both equally mental disorders And so we've got all these social groups that benefit from the promotion and conflation of normal emotions with dysfunction. You've heard about the military-industrial complex, where we've got a mental health-industrial complex. So we vastly overestimate the number of people who are mentally ill, and we're not focusing social policy on those who actually need treatment. Instead, we continually enlarge the social space of pathology into the general culture is a little bit from Decoding the Gurus.
2: I, I don't know my, if I if I played this clip, but th- this one was another really extreme one that I thought it would be good for people to hear. So here you go.
4: And we've had a giant loss of life, a giant number, millions and millions of unnecessary hospitalizations. Uh, and it seemed to me, and, I, and I've told Tucker Carlson and many others, it seems to me early on there was an intentional, very comprehensive suppression of early treatment in order to promote fear, suffering, isolation, hospitalization, and death. And it seemed to be completely organized and intentional in order to create acceptance for and then promote mass vaccination. So you believe
1: this is a premeditated thing that they were doing. So they realized that in order to get people enthusiastic about taking this vaccine, the best way to do that was to not have a protocol for treatment.
4: It's not just my idea. Now it's completely laid out by the book by Dr. Pam Popper, the book recently published by Peter Bregan, COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are
3: the Prey. We are the prey. Yes, and you did play that one, and it came in at about two hours in, two hours and two minutes if people are keen to focus on it. Yeah, so at the time when we were um, recording that, we just listened to so much of this nonsense, frankly. That
0: So depression is a little bit like a mini lockdown, right? When things go bad in your life or you suffer some setbacks or you lose an attachment, you lose resources, uh, you don't achieve your goals, the normal natural and healthy response is to lock yourself down a bit, to abstain from going out and taking action in the world and instead, pause, reflect on whether your actions are actually serving you because they haven't been serving you very well. So you need to stop acting. You need to stop <laughs> going out. You need to stop you know, getting social. You need to stop you know, trying to change the world and reflect on what could be a more useful approach. So sometimes depression, sadness, introspection, staying home, reflection is adaptive and normal and healthy and so too for communities when you've got a raging contagion maybe staying home is like a healthy response so looking at this michael Hildzik column in the los angeles times it's jarring to hear elite commentators say it's over put the mask away at the same time you have thousands of people dying being out of work because they're sick or their kids are sick wondering how they're going to pay the rent emergency room doctors Everyone who's checking out our groceries, serving our food, they ought to be offended. They're not done with COVID. So this phrase, done with COVID, this smug, unfeeling phrase, writes Michael Hiltzik, comes from Barry Weiss, right-wing pundit, who railed against COVID restrictions on the Bill Maher show.
3: Some of it just slipped by us. In fact, you know, some of the leads like that, there was just so crazy. So we didn't talk enough about it. But yeah, if you want to go back, it's about two hours in. That's where the crazy really gets going so just to be clear he's he's saying that the the pandemic was planned
0: so Oswald bengal says is the pharmaceutical industrial complex a separate entity from the mental health industrial complex there are many ways in which it's part they're part of the same complex and there there are ways in which it's separate because the pharmaceutical industry does not just specialize in depression but yeah, the pharmaceutical industry, I'm sure, does some good and the mental health industry does some good, but they also both do do a great deal of harm when they pathologize what is normal, natural, and healthy. Sadness, right, when life doesn't go your way, when you suffer loss, is a normal and healthy response. When you've got a raging influenza epidemic, uh, social distancing and uh, staying home is probably a healthy response.
3: That it was orchestrated, one. Two... That they deliberately suppressed life-saving early treatments, by which he means hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, which which would have saved people lives. So deliberately killing people and did all this to put the population of America, I suppose, into a state of fear so that they would be forced to take these vaccines, which he thinks are dangerous and don't work.
2: And this this is my why uh, this is a postscript to the episode before we get to the grammar, but just to point out that there's a guy online called Vinay Prasad, who's a, a doctor who produces content online about COVID and that kind of thing. And he wrote a thread responding to the claims made recently on Joe Rogan, right? And he, he very much took a line of, I disagree with them about the dangers of vaccines, but they raise... Very important issues, and if you read it, you come away with the impression that despite getting some things wrong, these are important voices that we need to have. And it's yeah,
0: I'm I'm impressed by the very low quality of the discourse in support of Joe Rogan. Like Michael Shermer is like praising you know Joe Rogan's apology, and got all these pundits in the media saying that you know Joe Rogan is this important voice. I'm sure Joe Rogan does some good work, but he's overall. The quality of his show is moronic. The quality of his thinking is moronic. He doesn't even realize that there was a moon landing in 1969. He, he thinks, oh, maybe it was faked. He has, he has no ability to judge r- reality. It, it's, it's, a, it's frequently a stupid show, and, and you will leave listening to it, you know, dumber than when you started listening to it. Yeah, there are some good, uh, good shows on it overall. The quality of the discourse is moronic uh, on The Joe Rogan Show.
2: It's good that Joe is introducing this discussion to the public. And what he didn't touch on was any of this, right? Like no. that, the, the this kind of thing or the promotion of HIV AIDS denialists or RFK Jr. anti-vaxxers. Like the claims made are sanitized into a version where it's reasonable disagreement. And I want to point out that this is a step which often happens, and then people will respond and kind of say, "So you're against free dialogue, and you're you're against, you know, you want to close down all the bits And I,
0: what I'm ha- so saying that uh, Joe Rogan frequently does moronic shows, and that Joe Rogan you know, lacks even a normal ability to see what is real from from what is fake, is not advocating that he be censored or that uh, episodes be removed from from Spotify. It's just calling, you know, calling a frequently moronic show, a frequently moronic show. So, You know, I'm not saying, oh, we need to take down his episodes from Spotify. I have no, no desire to censor him. It's just a moronic show with some occasionally, you know, edifying moments, but overall not worth investing much time in. So Barry Weiss, she has really ridden the, the zeitgeist. I mean, she's become huge since quitting the New York Times and, uh, knows how to put her finger on you know, attention-seeking commentary. And on the Bill Maher show, she said, I'm done with COVID. I'm done. I went so hard on COVID. I sprayed the Pringles cans that I bought at the grocery store. So this is typical. People go from one crazy extreme. Like I didn't spray any cans or groceries. Right? That, that's an extreme and ineffective way to deal with COVID. Like COVID is not transmitted in large part by touch. It's, it's aerosol that's in the air you know, spraying the Pringles can that you buy at the grocery store. I stripped my clothes off because I thought COVID would be on my clothes. This is just crazy thinking. I did it all. Then we were told you get the vaccine and you get back to normal. And we haven't gotten back to when, when were we told that if if you take the vaccine, that it's all over, that there could never be any more complications. Like you you didn't get that from by and large from public health officials. They said, get the vaccine that will, Reduce the likelihood that you'll get hospitalized and it'll reduce the likelihood that you'll die from COVID and will probably reduce the transmission of COVID. But uh, public health officials, people who knew about the vaccines and knew about COVID, but were not telling us, oh, everything's going to go back to normal once you take the vaccines." The vaccines are one important part of dealing with the COVID epidemic. At other times and places, wearing a mask may be an important part of dealing with the epidemic, even though everyone's vaccinated. And uh, social distancing may still have a an important role to play at certain times and certain places. So this this view that, you know, I'm done with COVID, it's just like an emotional outburst that has no relationship to reality. And, and then Barry Weiss on uh, Bill Marsha, you know, dry, drags out this you know debunked statistic suggesting that suicides among teen girls spiked during the pandemic. Later school closures. You hear a lot of this from the anti-lockdown crowd that all these people are committing suicide. Well, we have uh, plenty of studies that indicate that suicides have fallen during school closures and lockdowns. And then you hear a lot of stuff about how states that uh, instituted strong mitigation measures hadn't done appreciably better than those that remained wide open. Well, mitigation measures are not the only factor, right? There's a lot we don't know So you can have a state with strong mitigation methods and another state with weak mitigation methods, and they may have a similar rate of COVID death, but that doesn't tell you what the rate of death would be in that state that had strong mitigation methods, what it could have been without them. So there's a lot we don't know yet. If we look at excess death rates, then we would be looking at well over 2 million deaths from covid so to start thinking that we should you know just put a green light on the exit ramp from any pandemic restrictions is just ignoring reality we have to keep an eye on hospitalization rates and intensive care unit capacity new case rates positive test results just because you don't like reality doesn't mean that you can just say oh i'm done with reality
2: Highlighting and what we highlighted on the episode is what these guys are alleging. It's not within the realm of reasonable debate and stuff. It's outright conspiracism. It's Alex Jones level stuff. And if you want to treat it like that and discuss it, fine. If you're appropriately critical, if you're actually arguing back, but Joe Rogan is incapable of doing that. So what he's doing is introducing to a huge audience people that are advocating very extreme positions, but they're presented as reliable, cautious figures who have very important information, which is being...
0: So I don't believe the conventional wisdom or the, the dominant wisdom is always correct. <coughs> For example, we've got a whole grief counseling industry, and there's absolutely no evidence that grief counseling... And forcing people to acknowledge their grief are effective. In fact, the evidence shows that this tends to be, if anything, harmful. So an alarmingly high number of grieving people get worse after receiving treatment. And Alan Horwitz notes this in his 2007 book, The Loss of Sadness, How Psychiatry Transformed Normal Sorrow into Depressive Disorder. So grief shows you know all the all the symptoms of major depressive disorder but sometimes grief is normal natural and healthy like why would you not be intensely sad if you lose all your money or you lose your loved ones or you lose your girlfriend or you don't get a promotion that you thought you were going to get if a love affair ends that your spouse has been unfaithful that your marriage is ending that you haven't achieved your cherished goals right these are all reasons to be sad and to basically fulfill the DSM's own general definition of major mental depressive disorder. Right? An emotionally pained response to loss events such as marital romantic health or financial reversals is normal, natural, and healthy. Right? Marital dissolution is probably the most common trigger of intense normal sadness that can be severe enough to meet the DSM symptomatic criteria for depressive disorder. Right, the intense sadness that follows the loss of romantic attachments is a central literary theme. The current research supports the intuition that severe losses of intimate attachments naturally lead to sadness—not just marriage, losing friends, losing community, losing status, losing resources, or normal natural reasons to get suppressed.
3: Sad. As for Vane Prasad, he that hasn't listened to the whole thing, or hey, he did, or but, he's being just greatly irresponsible. Perhaps because he's angling for an appearance on Joe Rogan or something. Who knows? Whatever.
2: I put my flag in the ground that he or somebody like him, but I suspect him because Joe cited him recently positively as well. He will be brought on and he will respond to some of the points that McCulloch and Malone raised and he will be generally in favor of vaccines. But he will also say, you know, but a lot of the points that they raised are important and need to be discussed and he'll will both sides. Of, you you do not need to both sides of shit, do you? <laughs> no, it's just that it, it's going to be presented as you see. Joe is opening a debate, and he's he's willing to have people that disagree. But like Vinay and his friends is just praising Joe. So what Joe will do, and again, let let's see if I'm right or not, is that he will have someone on who is willing to say that what you know what he's saying yeah. is good. Yeah. That he so.
0: A lot of uh, people on the right have this moronic, uh, let let me stop uh, calling people names. So on the right, there's a much greater belief in self-efficacy that, that people can freely make choices to reduce their odds of getting sick. And obviously, people can make choices to reduce their odds of, of getting sick. The left tends to take much more of a, a social perspective on health and accepts much more of the randomness. Of life that you can be born with with bad genetics, and all the green vegetables and exercise aren't going to cure the the problem. So I placed myself in the middle. So yes, we can make choices that can expand the, the quality and possibly the length of our lives. But how much can we you know, improve the quality and the length of our lives? It's it's not at all clear. You know, we really don't know what uh, definitively causes heart disease and cancer so it used to be prior to the past hundred years most people died from infections and now that we've got that under control people live longer and now they die from cancer and heart disease and we're never going to you know win the war on cancer or heart disease people live longer their body is going to fail so there's a terrific book by the same sociologist of medicine diagnosis therapy and evidence conundrums in modern american Medicine. So. For most of human history, infectious diseases took their heaviest toll among infants and children. But beginning in the late 19th century, infectious diseases began to decline as the major causes of mortality. So more young people reached adulthood and lived longer. When you live longer, right, you get long-duration illnesses. When not many people are living longer, you don't get that many people with long-duration illnesses, notably heart disease and cancer. So people live longer. Obviously, long-duration illnesses, heart disease and cancer, are going to become more prominent in killing people, more prominent elements in morbidity and mortality patterns. So, Cancer and heart disease are diseases associated with advancing age. The longer people live, the greater risk you have of becoming ill or dying from heart disease or cancer. (laughs) So we have increasing prominence of long-duration and chronic diseases reflects that more and more of us are enjoying greater longevity in large part thanks to what the global elites are doing, right? They have transformed our health system and our sewage systems, and so we've been after double lifespans in the industrial world over the past 120 years. Now, health used to mean simply the absence of illness, but a dramatic perceptual transformation took place after World War II. So the World Health Organization promulgated in 1946 that health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. And why would the medical profession seek this vastly expanded definition of health? Right, Because you get to expand your power and your money-making abilities. Right. So the medical profession still deals with the care and treatment of the sick. But now... The medical profession has taken on the added responsibility of making people healthy, happy, and socially well-adjusted. And, yeah, it's not doing a particularly good job with that
2: because it's probably beyond its purview. He's an important figure. And that is a pushback that he can,
3: you know, cope with. This, This is a point that from just me personally really highlights the limits of this free speech discourse culture. Let's let's hash it out and sense make the shit out of this and we'll get to the bottom of it. It is really unhelpful. Like what you end up doing is giving dignity to and legitimizing absolutely batshit crazy as if the the truth is somewhere in between that batshit yeah. crazy and some version of reality. And it is not a good thing. It isn't a healthy thing. And it is so easy to present yourself as the peacemaker as the sense maker as the person who's willing to, to come along and talk this stuff out because Joe will go right back to having his conspiracy fruitcakes on and the occasional appearance of someone like Vinay Prasad will help legitimize what he's doing which is disinformation. Danger-
0: come on guys you got to watch out for that disinformation. All right I love this book by Alan Horwitz. Diagnosis, Therapy, and Evidence, Conundrums in Modern American Medicine, Chapter 4, How Science Tries to Explain Deadly Diseases, Meaning Heart Disease and Cancer. So Chapter 1 is Rhetoric and Reality in Modern American Medicine, and I I gave you that earlier, that health used to mean the absence of being sick, now health means being happy and socially well-adjusted and thriving. So that way the medical profession has an expanded mandate and gets to make more money and have more power and prestige. All professions do this. All professions limit who can get into the profession and expand the profession's ability to make money and to have influence and power. Chapter two is medical rivalry and etiological speculation, the case of the peptic ulcer. So why don't people get ulcers anymore? So etiology is how does something come about? Chapter three, how theory makes bad practice, the case of tonsillectomy. So we knew by the 1930s that tonsillectomies, generally speaking, weren't doing any good, but we kept performing tens of thousands of them into the 1960s because doctors got to make money from them. Just like all the ooverectomies taking out women's ovaries, hysterectomies, that shortens women's lifespans, leads to all sorts of negative results. Tens of thousands of these are still performed, even though in general, they're a bad idea, but they're a great moneymaker. Chapter five is transforming Stress into discrete disorders. So, when you're stressed, feeling anxious is a normal, natural response. When you're running out of money, feeling anxious is a normal, healthy response. When Mm -hmm. you're losing your attachments, losing your wife, losing your friends, losing your status, losing your community, losing your resources, a normal, natural, healthy response is to respond with a feeling of anxiety and stress. Chapter six, depression, creating consensus from diagnostic confusion. Why did we get now, three times as many people since the 1980s with depression uh, compared to prior to the 1980s, right? It's because we changed the definition of what's depression. And it used to be that anxiety was the number one mental health disorder. Why did it become depression? It has to do with the pharmaceutical industry. They, they couldn't license drugs to treat anxiety, but they could license these drugs to treat depression. And then physicians would rename depression anxiety, rename anxiety depression so they could feed people drugs. And sometimes these drugs do good, and sometimes they're a wash, and sometimes they do harm. I'm not, you know, instinctively knee-jerk opposed to pharmaceuticals.
3: Dangerous disinformation. Like I... this stuff just needs to be mocked and laughed at, which is which is what we do. But more people need no. to do
2: it. Then <laughs> uh, i sad, and and always like him. That are more definitely more reasonable than Malone. Definitely more reasonable than McCulloch. But there's this kind of set that are they're kind of the darlings of Barry.
0: And uh, Elliot Blatt asks, what are the signs of well-functioning epistemics? So epistemics refers to how do you know what you know? And the signs of a well-functioning epistemics is you're not getting humiliated, right? When your epistemics are in touch with reality, you're much less likely to get humiliated. Joe Rogan is being humiliated. And he can laugh it off and he's just did a stand-up comedy routine and laughed it off. But he's getting humiliated and he is getting ostracized. Because his epistemics are in bad shape. He can't even tell that there was a moon landing in 1969. So how do you know when you're getting out of touch with reality? How do you know when your epistemics are in bad shape? When you get humiliated on an ongoing basis.
2: Vice and others, you'll find them often. And you will also see them penning papers saying that uh, a year ago that the pandemic is going to end in four months time or something like that. And I'm not saying... That nobody else has made predictions, which have turned out wrong. But what happens is, like the mainstream and the institutional things, get slammed by the heterodox figures for their takes, which turned out to be wrong, right? Or their their kind of advice, which should have changed quicker with the evidence or that. But
0: okay, let's go to uh, chapter four of this terrific book: How Science Tries to Explain Deadly Diseases Like Heart Disease and Cancer. So, in contemporary America. Cancer and heart disease are the two leading causes of mortality. They arouse fear and anxiety. And I noticed many people talking about, oh, why do we have so many people dying of cancer and heart disease? It's because of the food industry or this industry or the truth is being hidden from people. Well, when people live longer, they die from these long-lasting diseases. Right? There are all these perennial calls for wars to conquer heart disease and cancer, which is never going to happen. You've got all these groups. You've got physicians, scientists, epidemiologists providing bewildering, ever-changing explanations of the causes of these two diseases. Now, I'm 55, right? I I know in my lifetime, the explanations for the causes of these diseases is just constantly changing by those with power in the medical and public health field, right? And and these ever-changing explanations continually shape surgical and medical therapies as well as preventative interventions. So hardly a day goes by without new behavioral and dietary advice that will presumably lower your risk of developing cancer and chronic heart disease. But these claims about etiology, the basis of these diseases, are not based on hard empirical data or sound epidemiological analysis. Epidemiology is a study of you know, where we get sick. Instead, these claims are based on broad social and intellectual currents that perceive of disease as a result of changing social environmental conditions or inappropriate lifestyles. So that cancer and heart disease are now the major causes of mortality is a recent development, right? Wasn't this wasn't this way in the 19th century. So what accounts for the increasing importance of heart disease and cancer as the major causes of mortality in the last 100 years? Well, because the other things that used to kill people when they were much younger are no longer such a big problem.
2: these heterodox doctors who make extreme claims that turn out to be completely wrong, they're brought on to take victory laps about how badly the institutions are getting things wrong and stuff. And like, it's kind of difficult because in a lot of respects, they're more reasonable. But I, I I was thinking about it in terms of like, waves that I've seen in this pandemic. And you have the first wave, which is, you know, the anti-vaxxers who are always anti-vaxxers, the Andrew Wakefields, the RFK Jr. Then you have this kind of second wave, like the people that we are looking at, McCulloch and Robert Malone and Brett Weinstein and, and so on, who are directly connected to the anti-vaxxers, right? Like they are recommending RFK Jr. and they're they're going to marches together with him now. But they they had that kind of appearance of separation. Initially, right? They're they're not anti-vaxxers. They just have some concerns, and I think there's a kind of third wave, which is which is not. There are important distinctions because generally they are not saying to people don't get vaccinated, but they're very much on the side of both sides to the point of arguing that people like Malone and McCulloch not pointing out that they're disinformation, uh, they're people spreading disinformation, but rather that. You know, they they just have different opinions mm. and like they've, they've got some things wrong that I disagree with, but, you know, but the institutions have got things wrong too. Mm. And it's a lot of their concerns are very legitimate that people have. And it's a kind of enlightened centrism, which tries to argue that everything is a golden mean that the, there's excesses amongst the heterodox, mm. Brett Weinstein and so on, maybe they may have took things too far, but but didn't the CDC and the WHO? So like both are equally at fault, and like no, mm. it it mm. isn't equal. One well. has been saying vaccines are good and helpful, and that you know the COVID is a, a serious disease, and the other has been implying that it's a conspiracy.
0: Okay, so. The checkered epidemiology of coronary heart disease mean that the people in medical and public health power have constantly given constantly changing explanations for what's causing coronary heart disease and you know, what we need to do to change. So at the beginning of the 20th century, you know, chronic heart disease was uncommon. But by the 1920s, there was this you know big upward trend in coronary heart disease, and it just continued unabated for 30 years. Beginning about 1950, age-specific death rates for all major cardiovascular renal diseases began to fall. Why? Between 1916 and 2005, age-adjusted mortality rates for all heart diseases fell from 559 to 211 per 100,000, so more than half declined. Virtually every age group shared in the decline. The aging of the population was not a factor in the increase in mortality from heart disease. The larger proportion of people within each age group group, perished from heart disease in 1950 than in 1900. So mortality began to decline in the 1960s. Between 1970 and 1993, mortality among men ages 45 to 64 dropped by more than 60%. Women experienced a similar decline. The decline in cardiovascular mortality had a significant effect upon life expectancy. Between 1962 and 1982, the death rate from all cardiovascular diseases dropped 36%. By 1982, this translated into 500,000 fewer deaths than would have occurred based on 1963 rates. So, this improvement in cardiovascular mortality played this huge role in the increase in life expectancy. So, what explains the irregular trend of mortality from chronic heart disease in the 20th century? We don't know. We don't know. You get all these people who make a living pronouncing on heart disease, all right? who go on crusades about heart disease. Now, this is what causes heart disease. We don't know why chronic heart disease you know, steadily went up in the first half of the 20th century, and then steadily went down from 1962 to 1982. All right? Researchers used to believe that heart disease was just a degenerative disease related to aging, and it could not be influenced by specific preventative measures. But now you've got tens of thousands of people making a living from promoting various preventative measures with regard to heart disease, but there's no strong evidence that they work. The Commission on Chronic Illness created in 1950 to study chronic disease noted that the causes of heart disease are known only in part. And uh, prevention of this disease is largely confined to the prevention of complications and that uh, heart disease is not preventable at the present time, right? But by the 1960s, the focus has shifted to the role of risk factors as crucial elements in the etiology, the basis of cardiovascular disorders. So it's, uh, it's dietary fat. It's raising your serum cholesterol, right? So... Age, blood pressure, serum, cholesterol. These are the key critical variables in the genesis of chronic heart disease, all right? And uh, the study showed that weight, smoking, and physical activity played no role in heart disease. And uh, then, you know, more more doctors came along and there are more studies. So... Uh-oh in the 1959 major problem among the population was high cholesterol levels this is the problem and and these are supposed to be the result of a, a diet high in meat and dairy fat margarine and hydrogenated shortenings which produce supposedly clogged arteries so in the past carbs played a much more important role in the american diet so in most parts of the world 60 to 75% of food calories come from carbohydrates but in the american military barely 40% comes from this source so the whole American population, in, in the first six years of 20th century, largely re, replaced carbohydrates with fat. So then all these doctors come along, the you know heart disease associations, you know promoting low fat diet will prevent chronic heart disease. But uh, the the fat is the is the problem. Obviously now that has been questioned. So then we get studies saying that it's high blood pressure, obesity, cigarette smoking. <laughs> family history of heart disease is the is crucial. So all these various American public health associations are constantly coming out with contradictory claims about what causes chronic heart disease. Right, so the idea of identifying individuals at risk for chronic heart disease was becoming firmly established by the 1970s, 70s, but uh, there was no unanimity on which risk factors should be used. But they, the medical profession thought, oh, you know, this will be resolved. But during the 1970s and 80s, there's this rising crescendo of claims that high-fat diets and obesity are causing heart disease and cancer. So these new studies rejected the the older degenerative hypothesis, and, and they claimed that chronic heart disease was the result of a series of behaviors peculiar to the industrialized world. So... This gave meaning to U.S. public health officials and doctors because these people could now identify those who are presumably at greater risk of heart disease and, and show them ways of decreasing that risk. So the mystery and the randomness that are previously characterized explanations of chronic heart disease now superseded by the claim that individuals were at increased risk for chronic heart disease if they ate high-fat foods, if they smoked, if they were overweight, if they were physically inactive. Right. When you when you can tell people what to do and, and save their lives, there's a lot of power and money and status you can gain. So this new emphasis on behavioral risk factors mirrored a belief that each individual was responsible for his own health. Right? That that you know we can freely make choices so that we can live long and well. As well as a faith that medical science could illuminate, you know, what's causing all these awful diseases. So you have all these medical professionals saying that it's the availability of rich and abundant foods, alcohol, smoking, less physical activity, and other good things associated with the modern industrialized world. That's what's killing people with heart disease. That uh, the problems of disease arise mainly from the circumstances of living. So here's a quote from a medical study. Rural communities with poor sanitation located in areas heavily infested by parasites, mosquitoes, and other disease agents and vectors reflected with one pattern of health, disease, and mortality. Urban communities starting on the path of industrialization but affected by crowding, inadequate food, and poor sanitation have another pattern. Modern metropolitan communities with advanced industrialization and good sanitation but low physical demand coupled with access to plenty of fatty foods have another kind of health, disease, mortality pattern. So you have all these studies emphasizing improvements in treatments and reductions in risk factors. You get clinical trials to identify risk factors. You need all these observational studies to provide evidence supporting the causal association between risk factors and chronic heart disease. So The stronger the association, the more convincing that that relationship between risk factors and heart disease was causal. And second, you know, exposure to these risk factors, that that always precedes the onset of the disease, and uh, the association has to be dose-dependent. Fourth, the relationship has to be consistently demonstrated under diverse circumstances, such as various populations, and it had to be biologically plausible, and the association had to be specific in that the risk was associated with a particular disease. So that's what the task force of the American College of Cardiology in 1996 tried to establish. Then you get another task force that specifies interventions for specific risk factor categories, such as cigarette smoking, LDL cholesterol, hypertension. And then there are other categories that are going to reduce your odds of getting heart disease, such as reducing diabetes, increasing physical activity. Then there are factors that might reduce chronic heart disease, such as psychosocial factors, triglycerides, alcohol consumption. So the emphasis on risk factors as major elements of chronic heart disease is not persuasive. So you know why do chronic heart disease mortality rates you know, rise among young men in the 30s and 40s from the 1920s to the 1950s? If the causative factor right, is responsible for, for this chronic heart disease, then a latency period of perhaps 20 years must be subtracted from the time when the mortality curve began to rise. But this was not the case. The risk factors did not begin to be an important element until the late 20th century, whereas chronic heart disease mortality has been dropping since 1960. Dietary changes came in after World War II, so we switched to more fat, less cholesterol after World War II. Then in the 1970s and 80s, we switched to more carbs, less fat. Death rates for chronic heart disease in general have not followed our dietary changes. It's really hard to know what diet makes what effect on health because you'd have to follow people for years and years and years under very particular circumstances to see what they actually eat. So cigarette smoking, that's supposed to be a major cause of chronic heart disease. Uh, evidence is uh, quite low. Uh, Americans have become more sedentary in the latter part of the 20th century. But uh, heart disease is uh, we don't have strong evidence that it's primarily caused by a lack of physical activity and uh, not much evidence that it's cigarette smoking either. Comparative data from other countries also fails to sustain the claim that risk factors such as high-fat diets explain chronic heart disease. So in Southern Europe, heart disease rates have steadily declined, while animal fat consumption rose during the 20th century because of increasing affluence. So. More animal fat consumption, lower heart disease rates. Then you've got scientists saying, oh, it's the availability and consumption of fresh produce year-round that keeps people healthy, right? You've got to eat your greens, right? Scotland and Finland, right? They have high rates of chronic heart disease that citizens eat high-fat diets but consume a few fresh vegetables and fruits. But Mediterranean populations consume large amounts of fresh produce year-round. All right, so we've got this big anti-fat movement which has gained so much prominence in recent decades all based on the notion that something bad, at heart disease, had to have had an evil cause and you got a heart attack because you did something wrong which was eating too much of a bad thing rather than not having enough of a good thing. Right, let's learn more about effective communication
5: skills by Dalton Kehoe. Like the little kid that I am. It happens all the time. But this is a more obvious and dramatic example of what happens in smaller ways in conversation. We do what we do. We ignore or distort input and go with the flow as long as we don't get caught. That is, don't get put on the spot by somebody else. We think we're just fine. In fact, many philosophers analyzing the human condition argue that our ego can't actually handle too much reality. We have to somehow defend ourselves against it.
0: Yeah, that's a very good insight. So a lot of us have, you know, highly irrational beliefs and and great overestimation of our own uniqueness and talent to, you know, sustain our ego. So epidemiology, the study of disease, has become a major academic discipline during the second half of the 20th century, but many of its methods and explanations have serious problems, right? Many epidemiological studies rely on cohort analysis and observational studies. So they investigate and monitor heart disease rates and lifestyle factors such as diet, physical activity, and then infer conclusions from the relationship between them. So they identify risk factors such as high-fat diets, which presumably cause heart disease. The problem is that risk factors are at best associations. They do not necessarily explain changes in epidemiological patterns in time and space. Cohort analysis generates hypotheses but says nothing about causation. Unless you're taking genetics into account... Uh, these studies are not so useful. So associating disease and behavior has become the whole basis of public health recommendations about what individuals should do to prevent a disease. But many of these observational studies are erroneous. The claim that hormone replacement therapy or beta-carotene consumption protected against heart disease, and that fiber intake protected against colon cancer, have all been discredited. So there's this arrogance of preventative medicine. Without any evidence from positive randomized trials, without systematic reviews of randomized trials, we cannot justify soliciting the well to accept any personal health interventions. There are simply too many examples of the disastrous inadequacy of lesser evidence as a basis for individual interventions among the well. This is from chapter four of this terrific book, Diagnosis, Therapy, and Evidence Conundrums in Modern American Medicine. So all sorts of epidemiological studies are severely limited by methodological inadequacies they failed to shed light on pathological mechanisms so 56 different cause-effect relationships in these studies had conflicting evidence which the results of at least one epidemiological study were contradicted by the results of another about 40 more conflicting relationships would have been added if the review had included studies of disputed associations between individual sex hormones and individual birth defects so americans are besieged by behavioral advice that changes daily. At first, they are told that margarine is better than butter, and they learn that butter is better than margarine. They are told that exercise is good for the heart, but then they are told it increases the risk of sudden death. They are told that vitamin E and beta carotene prevent cancer, only to learn that, uh, that both were no better and possibly worse than a placebo. So all these changes in disease incidence and prevalence frequently have little relationship to risk factors. Now, the emphasis on risk factors has been a major impact on medical practice. So, by the 1970s, the asymptomatic treatment of high blood pressure, hypertension, one of the risk factors identified with chronic heart disease has become standard medical practice. But high cholesterol could not be treated. So, it was not regarded as a significant factor in chronic heart disease. So, the introduction of pharmaceuticals, notably the statins in the 1980s to control cholesterol level, right? That led to dramatic changes in medical thinking and practice. So cholesterol reduction fueled by the introduction of statins became an important goal of medicine, right? You get statins. The pharmaceutical industry gives us statins, and then we get the creation of a new disease category. Elevated cholesterol, that's the threat. But elevated cholesterol is a disorder of pure number, and the number is largely a function of the negotiating process between pharmaceutical companies and consensus medical committees that set numbers in an arbitrary manner frequently so whether elevated cholesterol is is a disease in the conventional sense of the term or simply a number that has been reified meaning you know made holy by pharmaceutical industry and you know medical committees is questionable right the evidence that cholesterol reduction medications prevent heart disease is not at all clear. <laughs> Yet we have you know, over $30 billion a year in statin sales, but no evidence that they do good. So we have a medical industry and a pharmaceutical industry that has a financial incentive to continually define pathology in terms of a numerical scale from normal to abnormal. And we've got this faith in risk factor explanations that's not validated by evidence. That Risk factor explanations have had a major impact on dietary and behavioral advice given Americans you know, over the last 70 years. Right? It's supposed to be high saturated fat that caused heart disease, so you had the American Heart Association, the American Medical Association, urging Americans to reduce their intake of saturated fat by eating less meat, eggs, butter, and cheese. these oil elevate cholesterol, they clog the arteries, and they add weight. Americans have been urged to cease smoking. Americans have uh, heeded this advice. So fat intake, cigarette smoking, hypertension, cholesterol levels of all declined the last quarter of the 20th century, but there's no evidence in the incidence of heart disease has declined.
5: Defend ourselves against being overwhelmed by it, actually. Now, I think this idea is captured in a very famous exchange at the dramatic high point of a courtroom drama called A Few Good Men. When a young, altruistic defense attorney challenges a tough, aging Marine commander alleged to have given an order that led to one of his men's death. Like our ideal self, he shouts, I want the truth. And like our ego defense system, the older man shouts back, you can't handle the truth. And often we can't. Not if it's going to evoke feelings of guilt or shame. The emotional processes involved in protecting our ego will parallel our discussion of the inference ladder model of reality we reviewed in Lecture 6. Remember, it clarified how our thinking processes work when we're confronted. When we talk back to our confronter, we think we're responding from the here and now, when actually our thinking is separated from the here and now by at least four steps of automatic cognitive processing.
0: So... My my agenda here is not, you know, the medical profession is all crooked. I don't think it's any more crooked than any other profession. The medical profession does some good, and they also do some harm. I think overall they do more good than harm, but uh, a little skepticism about their pronouncements is frequently in order. Obesity levels and diabetes have risen dramatically since Americans have heeded the American Medical Association advice and American Heart Association advice to eat less fat. Americans eat less fat, their obesity rates have skyrocketed. So between 1960 and 1980, you just had this dramatic increase in obesity. And when I came to America, I was amazed at all the fat people. Now I go back to Australia, and there are just as many proportionately fat people in Australia as in America. So we've got this astronomical rise in obesity and in diabetes. So the emphasis on low-fat diets has led to increased carbohydrate consumption, increased obesity, and increased diabetes. So the percentage of calories from carbohydrates between 1971 and 2000 has increased from 42 to 49% among men and from 45 to 52% among women. Percentage of calories from total fat decreased from 37 to 33% among men, among women 36 to 33. So We have increased consumption of food away from home as well as large consumption of salty snacks, soft drinks, pizza, and increased portion sizes. Now, the relationship between high-carbohydrate diets and heart disease and disease in general is complex. The more carbohydrates are consumed, the greater the need for insulin to send the glucose from carbohydrates to the cells. If blood sugar is higher than normal, resistance to insulin glucose develops, which is characteristic of persons with either insulin-dependent or non-insulin-dependent diabetes. The other side of the equation is that excess insulin leads the liver to secrete triglycerides for storage in the fat tissue with all those risks. So the ensuing state of hyper amounts of diabetes, hyperinsulin prevents the development of diabetes but increases the risk of developing hyperlipidemia and hypertension, which then supposedly heightens the risk of developing chronic heart disease. So a low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet does not modify the basic defect in insulin resistant persons, who are about one third of Americans, and accentuates all of the undesirable metabolic manifestations, including chronic heart disease. Now, recent years, insulin resistance, hypertension, high triglycerides, low identity lipoprotein cholesterol levels have become known as metabolic syndrome. You hear conversation about this on Dennis Prager's show a lot. Now, there's considerable debate whether there is such a thing as metabolic syndrome whether it is a distinct entity now central obesity particularly in the upper body as contrasted with lower body obesity is an important cause of insulin resistance other factors include diet and sedentary lifestyle so insulin resistance appears to be a far more important variable than weight but the national institutes of health promote the claim that high LDL cholesterol, the result of high saturated fat diets and cholesterol, was the major cause of heart disease. (laughs) This is a position that is seconded by most prestigious medical organization, but there's no evidence for this. Such claims are not confirmed by studies. So we've still got this widespread hold of risk factor hypothesis with regard to heart disease, but we don't have a convincing fit of trends for any risk factor with heart disease. We can't directly associate specific improvements in cardiovascular disease prevention and treatment with mortality decline. So the influences of altered behaviors, medical treatment and prevention are incomplete, indirect and equivocal. Now, we don't really know why people get and die from chronic heart disease risk factor theory despite its popularity despite its widespread acceptance in the medical community has very little basis so many of the dietary standards promulgated by the government and medical associations are not valid and frequently are harmful now there are other explanations for the rise of chronic heart disease after 1900 So why is it a common cause of death among men who have low-risk characteristics? So maybe it is caused by fetal undernutrition. That's one theory. The search for the causes of Western diseases, such as chronic heart disease and cancer, focus on the adult environment, and they tend to ignore the childhood environment. Most environmental models have their origin in those epidemiological studies that deal with the effects of cigarette smoking. So, may well be that chronic heart disease to, will turn out to be the effect of interuterine or early postnatal environment.
5: Cognitive processing. So, we manage to get through many situations without being here and real, even though we're telling ourselves we are here and we are being real. Now, to pull off this self deception, We need to employ communication and thought patterns that protect our mind, self, ego, from psychic pain. These are the ego defenses. Now, what's interesting is that although Freud's version of the unconscious and its pressures on the ego is really not very widely accepted today, his concept of ego defenses and his list of defensive patterns are still used by many therapists and researchers. When we are in trouble with reality, reality always wins. So we have to defend ourselves using one or more of these techniques in our everyday conversations, in our everyday lives. Let's start with denial. We simply refuse to admit that a threat is relevant to us or assume somehow that it can be postponed. How about avoidance? Here we refuse to face a threat. We simply step out of the way of any situation that might force us to look at it.
0: Uh, there are provocative theories that uh, large cause of chronic heart disease is uh, infection in childhood. So until the 1980, peptic ulcers were attributed to gastric acidity, stress, smoking, alcohol, and genetic predispositions, even though it's been, they've been successfully treated since 1946 by antibiotics. So the prevailing paradigm was that peptic ulcers were a non-infectious disease. But we have a successful empirical treatment from 1946, treating it with antibiotics. So perhaps research on chronic heart disease will follow a similar path. So at present, it is possible to diagnose and manage chronic heart disease by bypass surgery, angioplasty, stents, and drugs, though their effectiveness remains controversial. So these medical technologies seem to improve the quality of life, even though they do not seem to extend life. But the whole basis for what causes chronic heart disease remains shrouded in mystery. So we've had this dramatic decline since 1960 in heart disease mortality But nobody seems to know why this happened. Nobody knows what are the underlying mechanisms responsible for coronary disease. Everyone is free to provide their own theory and opinion. You can claim that it's because of fat, or jogging, or lack of exercise. You can think it comes from having a competitive personality. You might assert that more of us should become calmer and less combative. But uh, we don't really know what causes heart disease and what reduces incidence of coronary mortality. And like chronic heart disease, cancer presents similar enigmas. So in 1900, cancer accounted for perhaps 4% of all deaths, ranked sixth as a cause of mortality. Then the proportion of deaths from cancer began a gradual rise. By 1940, cancer was ranked second, accounted for 11% of mortality. Since 1993, there's been a modest decline in cancer mortality. And then the disease, the decrease accelerated between 2002 and 2004. So like heart disease, mortality from cancer relates to age. Increase in number of cancer deaths was in large part a reflection that people were living longer. So We don't really know much about what causes cancer. Cancer arouses profound fears and anxieties, but it's still a mystery. You've got all sorts of competing theories about what causes cancer. Some people claim it's a contagious disease caused by germs. Some insist it's inherited. Some think it's related to the rise of industrial civilization. Other people say it's caused by emotions and stress. And so the seeming inability of doctors to treat most forms of cancer has led to a proliferation of therapies. We don't have much evidence of their effectiveness. So, by the late 1960s, a powerful lobby declared war on cancer, leading to the passage of the War on Cancer Act of 1971. Cancer has received more publicity than almost every other disease, Long being a barometer of social difference, an index of social roles and relations, vital indicator of inequalities, marker of fundamental differences among people, and a vehicle for expressing anxieties about change and social status. So, cancer has been blamed on heredity, microbes, viruses, irritation, Occupation, behavior, diet, environment, psychological factors such as stress. But we don't really know what causes cancer. No, it's easier to describe its pathology than its etiology. So pathology is the progress of the disease. Etiology is trying to understand why you have the disease.
5: To look at it force us to face weakness in ourselves. We avoid anything that might cause us dis In talk, we avoid certain topics, or we talk around them using indirection or euphemism. How about rationalization, one of the most common defense mechanisms? Making excuses, explaining away threats to our sense of self. We didn't live up to it. It wasn't me. It was them who made me do this. When a manager is confronted by a colleague about hitting the wall outside her boss's office in anger, another defense we'll talk about momentarily, She turns and says, if you look at this part of the wall, it has lots of marks in front in it from bad conversations with that idiot. Very clever rationalization.
0: And Phantom says, Luke, how do you explain that in 1939, upper class New York males ate around 4,100 calories a day and obesity rates were very low? And uh, back to the book. Contrary to popular belief, the genesis of cancer is a slow process. Decades pass before the disease becomes symptomatic. Progression of lung cancer is slow. General, a person has to smoke for three decades before a single cell becomes malignant. Uh, Colon cancer, the natural progression is also slow, takes between 20 and 40 years. Now, unlike chronic heart disease, cancer rates have not fluctuated radically. But overall cancer mortality rate is not necessarily an accurate barometer. Rates for specific cancers have changed dramatically over time. And there's considerable variations in mortality based on sex, ethnicity, race, class, age, and geography. So such variations make it extraordinarily difficult to make definitive statements about the etiology, the basis, what causes cancer. what, All these cancers may turn out to be very different kinds of diseases, even though they are all subsumed under a single general category of cancer. So between 1930 and 1965 age adjusted mortality rates from all cancer increased and then they started going down from the early 1990s so what accounts for overall cancer mortality as well as changes in the rates for particular cancers we don't know so there's general agreement that certain cancers have external causes lung cancer is related to smoking The etiology, the basis for most cancers, is a mystery. So it used to have high rates of gastric cancer. Before World War II, gastric cancer was the leading cause of cancer mortality in males. By 1930, decline in mortality appeared that has persisted for the rest of the century. In 1960, it had fallen to sixth place. 1992, it ranked ninth. Other industrialized nations experienced a comparable decline. What explains this dramatic decline? There's no evidence that new treatments played a role. There's no change in survival rates after diagnosis. No environmental factors such as diet get the most attention. More fresh fruit and vegetables. Despite the claim that diet is the primary reason for high rates of cancer, researchers have been able to quantify the effect of diet with any degree of accuracy. So this whole persistence of wide variations and changes in cancer mortality rates and diets between countries render many etiological explanations a problem. So the decline in mortality preceded a dietary change. So like the decline in mortality from chronic heart disease, the decline in mortality from gastric cancer remains a puzzle. Striking relationship between smoking and lung cancer has fostered the emergence of an explanatory model that emphasizes environmental and behavioral bases for most cancers. Yet the evidence to dis- demonstrate such linkages is hardly persuasive. Virtually all of the epidemiological studies that emphasize such factors as diet and lifestyle in cancer suffer from the same defects as similar studies of the etiology of chronic heart disease.
5: The wall has got the problems and the boss has got the problems. The next common form of defense is intellectualization. Etiology. Now, this is rationalization for the better educated. More etiology. education provides us the opportunity of creating more complex explanations. of
0: so, etiology. etiology. The cause, the set of causes, or manner of cause of a disease or condition.
5: Etiology. Complex explanations of our reality that will distance us from our own bad behavior. So we say it's the nature of the world, of today's kids, or it's the nature of men or of women or the economy, anything to cover up our inability to simply ask for or get what we want. The better your education, the more power to reason away the world's responses to you. This reminds me of Woody Allen's ego defense in the movie Annie Hall when he says, the other important joke for me is one that usually is attributed to Groucho Marx, but I think appears only in Freud's wit and its relation to the unconscious. And it goes like this. I would never want to belong to any club that would have someone like me for a member. And you know, that's the key joke of my adult life in terms of my relationships with women.
0: Okay, so you get an academic named Richard Dahl. who played a big role in... Publicizing and illuminating the risks of smoking, and he extended the environmental interpretation of cancer causes in dramatic fashion. So, cancer, he wrote in 1981, is largely a preventable disease. More than two thirds, or perhaps more, of all cancers were due to smoking and diet. While occupational hazards, alcohol, food additives, sexual behavior, pollution, industrial products, and medical technology played minor roles. So, along with Richard Peto, he gathered comparative comparative data that revealed differential incidence rates for specific cancers in various countries and only diet and lifestyle they insisted could explain such differences their studies were widely publicized eventually made it into book form and were cited in countless journal articles and so we have this widespread belief that cancer is a largely preventable illness. In nineteen ninety-six, the Harvard Report on Cancer Prevention included a table listing the estimated percentage of total cancer deaths attributable to established causes of cancer, such as tobacco. That tobacco accounted for thirty percent, along with diet and obesity for thirty percent of cancer mortality. Sedentary lifestyle, occupation, family history, biological agents, prenatal factors each counted for five percent. The remainder were divided among reproductive factors, alcohol, socioeconomic status, environmental pollution, radiation, prescription drugs, medical procedures, salt, and other food additives. Cancer was a preventable illness. Right? So we need to reduce smoking and consumption of alcohol. Dietary modifications. More vegetables, fruit, bread, pasta, cereals. Reduce consumption of red meat, animal fat, salt, refined carbohydrates. Greater use of plant oils. (coughs) And there's considerable evidence that uh, greater use of plant oils is not so good for you. Avoidance of obesity in adult life, increased physical activity, avoidance of exposure to radiation and environmental hazards. And the World Cancer Research Fund came to similar conclusions and argued for this preventative approach. Now, an epidemiologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City expressed reservations. He noted that the report echoed countless cohort case-controlled ecological studies that purport to show that cancer was caused by environmental factors but uh, this Dr. Colin Begg epidemiologist emphasized that the emission of any consideration of genetic susceptibility which could operate independently of environmental risk factors. So this effort to link cancer to diet to carcinogens to behavior which has been central to the public health campaign to prevent control disease it's been rooted largely in belief and hope rather than fact. So that prevention of cancer in the latter half of the 20th century remains an elusive goal, has not diminished the popularity of the kill cancer industry. Prevention supports values that place a premium on individual responsibility for one's own health and well-being. This is what conservatives love. like Individual responsibility, that's the... That's the cure for cancer and heart disease. The alternative to the etiology of cancer is not clear and is not necessarily amenable to individual choice is not an attractive explanation. It's entirely plausible that cancer is closely related to aging, genetic susceptibility, and genetic mutations, which together impair the ability of the immune system to identify and attack malignant cells and thus permit them to multiply. If there is at present No way to arrest the aging process, then cancer mortality is inevitable. And many of the genetic mutations that eventually lead to cancer occur randomly and thus cannot be prevented. But this conception of prevention of cancer remains popular. But we don't have evidence for effective therapies. One doctor wrote that after 35 years of intensive effort, the focus on improving cancer treatment, this must be judged a failure. The best of modern medicine has much to offer to virtually every patient with cancer for palliation, but not necessarily for cure. The problem is the lack of substantial improvement over what treatment could already accomplish decades ago. We're not making progress in the war on cancer. A national commitment to the prevention of cancer, largely replacing reliance on hopes for universal cures, is now the way to go. So in the past decade, there have been some advances in treating many cancers that extend life, but do not result in cures. Now, aside from behavioral modification to reduce cancer morbidity and mortality, there's an increasing effort to urge individuals to take advantage of screening tests. We've got to screen early, guys. Colon screening tests, breast cancer screening tests. So we've largely accepted medical claims that finding cancer in its early stages saves lives. Listen to Katie Couric, guys. So virtually all women over the age of 40 have had a pap test to detect cervical cancer. 90% have had a mammogram. 71% of males age 50 or over have had a prostate test to detect prostate cancer. So the goal of screening is to detect disease in its earliest stages when it is most treatable and presumably curable. But for screening to be successful, three requirements must be met. First, the disease must have a recognizable early stage. Second, there must be an accurate way to diagnose the disease. And finally, there must be a therapy that is effective when applied early rather than late. But the evidence that overall cancer mortality has been reduced by screening is not persuasive.
5: Relationships with women. Now, there is intellectualization in full flight. Notice how elegantly he doesn't say he's a loser when it comes to the opposite sex. Another very common ego defense is displacement. When reactions are redirected from a more threatening activity to a less threatening person or object, you're really angry. You can't do anything to the person or the situation that made you angry, so you displace the anger into some other object or situation. You drive too fast, you whack your kid, seems to help us release all of that tension. At least we think it does. How about projection? Rather than accept negative emotions in ourselves, we attribute our anger and threatened feelings to other people. So
0: there's no clear evidence that current cancer treatments, including radiation and hormone therapy, extend life. Prostate cancer screening has resulted in a substantial degree of overdiagnosis of cancers that never would have been presented clinically and would not affected morbidity or morbidity or mortality so many cancer treatments have serious side effects including impotence incontinence and higher risk of death following surgery so since many prostate cancers grow so slowly that they are harmless the treatments themselves may pose far greater dangers than watchful waiting there is apparently way too much prostate screening, resulting in too much treatment. The medical industry is feeding off the cancer phobia. So I'm reading from a terrific uh, book Diagnosis, Therapy, and Evidence Conundrums in Modern American Medicine. So for men younger than age 75, the benefits of screening for prostate cancer are uncertain. The balance of benefits and harms cannot be determined. This study also recommends against screening prostate cancer in men age 75 or older since the harms outweigh the benefits. So we got a steroid drug in the early 1990s to treat enlargement of the cancer. And a big trial was launched to determine if it prevented the disease. Nope. And then what about early screening for for breast cancer? Doesn't really save lives either. The evidence that mammography alone plays a significant role in preventing death is weak and indirect. And what about the long-term effect of associated radiation hazards? So the promotion of mammography as a general public health measure is premature. Mammography remains a controversial screening tool. The claims for its efficacy seem to have been overstated. So over-diagnosis accompanies increased screening and it Overdiagnosis poses its own risks, and mammography exposes individuals to radiation, which has many health problems. So it's not at all clear that the benefits of all this early cancer screening, the benefits of mammography outweigh the risk. Cherished explanations for the etiology, etiology and changing patterns of cancer and heart disease, morbidity and mortality, lack evidence. Many etiological assertions tend to be based on opinion and hope rather than on clear evidence. There's a striking difference between medicine's ability to manage diseases and its etiological claims. Etiological claims, whose validity is yet to be determined, can have a negative impact because they lead to the articulation of proposals for behavioral changes in diet and lifestyles that may not be good. So, our knowledge about cancer. Heart disease and basic physiological processes, however impressive, is dwarfed by what remains unknown. Back to decoding the gurus.
2: That the vaccines are harmful and that ivermectin is a miracle cure. It's not equal.
3: The, well, the thing that unites a lot of these characters is the motivation to stake out some territory in that independent commentator space. All of these people have an interest in being a public communicator, have having an online platform. And it occurs to me that the incentives for someone in that position is very much to pander, I think, to some degree, to popular sentiments and to stake out a position that is recognizably different from the mainstream orthodoxy. Because if it's not, then they don't really have any added value to add to the ecosystem. So I can see the incentives and the siren called that inexorable pull towards hot takery, you know, and it's not, like you said, the distinctions are important. These people are not equivalent to Malone and McCulloch, but, you know, it is, it's a slippery slope and the incentives just pull people in in the wrong direction. There's, There's just no online cachet to be made for Moderation, tepid takes, the CDC, WHO positions,
2: which, despite them getting it wrong occasionally, are the most correct positions. <laughs> so, the issue that people take with that is they'll say, Well, look, CDC is political. You know, it says five days is.
0: Okay, let's uh, go to chapter one in this uh, terrific book, Rhetoric and Reality in Modern American Medicine. Most Americans believe that their healthcare system is the best in the world, number one. Yet they do not recognize the extent to which many claims about the causes of disease, therapeutic practices, and even diagnoses are shaped by beliefs that are unscientific, unproven, and wrong. This is not to condemn American medicine, which has its strengths, but to point to rhetorical claims and practices that rest on shaky foundations. For most of human history, death was associated with infectious diseases. They took their heaviest toll among infants and children. But beginning in the late 19th century, for reasons we don't fully understand, infectious diseases began to decline as the major causes of mortality. So, the reduction in mortality among the young permitted more people to reach adulthood and to live longer. So, Therefore, long-duration diseases, such as heart disease and cancer, have become more and more prominent. So... the decline in mortality from infectious diseases largely preceded antibiotic drug therapy so if and infectious diseases could be say conquered by antibiotic drugs as we were told by the health establishment why could not long duration diseases be eliminated by new medical therapies so americans have come to believe that the medical care system can play a crucial role in conquering disease and extending longevity but it The importance of uh, medical care for our health is, uh, generally speaking, for most people, not significant. So Americans take it as an article of faith that a science-based health system has the capacity to reduce morbidity and mortality and improve the quality of their lives. They point with pride to a health establishment that is, in their eyes, superior to that of any other nation. They believe that their medical schools in America turn out the best-trained physicians. We've got this vast hospital system with an array of imposing technologies and the most up-to-date therapies, and the pharmaceutical companies have the capacity to develop innovative drugs that both treat and prevent disease. But uh, beneath the surface, there is considerable unease. For example, we've got constantly rising health expenditures. The U.S. spends twice as much on health compared to the median of other industrialized companies but it's health indicators are anything but
2: impressive. The, now the quarantine time and so on. But like, I, I think a point I would want to make clear is our position is not everything that the CDC and WHO ever said was exactly correct. Like, no, you factor into institutions that they get things wrong, that there are political considerations. That should be your baseline standard for dealing with any institutions, that there will be mistakes, that there will be differences of opinion. And that there will be times when there are politics which influence the things. So it isn't that you can't be critical of these institutions or the decisions that you make.
0: Right, back to this book. So many of our standards of care are not effective. The evidence in support of many widely used therapies, drugs for decreased bone density, statins for cholesterol reduction, surgery for back pain, and various surgical procedures to treat heart disease, the evidence for these therapies widely used in the hundreds of thousands of examples is hardly impressive. So the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services offered financial incentives to hospitals to adopt guidelines promoted by the American College of Cardiology and the American Hospital Association to treat acute myocardial infarctions. It found that the adoption of such guidelines didn't really increase care and health outcomes. So many technological innovations come into widespread use, into billions of dollars of use in America when there is no evidence that they benefit patients, right? The introduction of CT, computed, computed tomography and geography, is one example. So there was massive enthusiasm for this procedure, no evidence it does any good. Uh, chiropractors, right? Billions and billions of dollars go to chiropractors, no evidence it does any good. There's, there's no evidence that CT and MRI scanning for many conditions results in improved health outcomes. Meniscal findings on knee MRIs had little clinical relevance, even though these findings led to arthroscopic surgery that provided no benefit. That lots of people are getting arthroscopic surgery that provides no benefit. There are massive regional differences in medical therapies and expenditures. So Medicare patients living in Rhode Island undergo knee replacements at uh, at a much lower rate than in Nebraska. So we've got these dramatic differences in healthcare spending, but uh, along with the healthcare spending, you don't get evidence of strong health results. So these differences in treatment are a function of inpatient-based and specialist-oriented pattern of medical practices that prevail in high-cost regions. So neither quality access to care nor health outcomes are superior in such regions. The more hospitals, the more doctors, the more laboratories, the more subspecialists in a given geographical area, the more they are used, but not strong evidence for improved health outcomes. So medical... Care for hip fractures, colorectal cancer, and myocardial infarction found that persons in high-spending regions received 60% more care but did not have better results. So some regions have six times as uh, many hip and knee replacements for chronic arthritis and surgery for lower back pain. So the cause, the case of back and neck problems is illustrative. So most Americans have back pain at times and many have neck pain. There's been a substantial increase in rates of medical imaging, injections, use of opiates, and surgery for spine problems. Total expenditures for these conditions has increased 65% adjusted for inflation, much higher than overall medical spending. But did it do any good? There's no evidence the persons with these conditions have reported a corresponding improvement in their self-assessed status. So lumbar fusion rates have accelerated when intervertebral fusion cages were introduced in 1996, the absence of any real change in the indications for surgery, despite the fact that the surgery is associated with far more complications than discectomy or laminectomy. Relative risk for surgery within a geo- given geographical region tends to remain constant over time, Regions with high rates of surgery remain high-risk. Those with low rates remain low. So hardly a day passes without news of some therapeutic advance or behavioral advice derived from epidemiological studies. We have a proliferation of new diagnoses, generally accompanied by the introduction of new pharmaceuticals. But we're not paying attention to the nature and quality of the supporting evidence or the methods employed to measure these therapies' validity. So for many of our therapies, for many of our etiological explanations and health recommendations, we're taking them at face value, unaware of the shaky foundation upon which they rest and the adverse consequences that follow from following these
2: methods. And all scientists and all policymakers are critical. Do you have debates about what is the appropriate thing? But the point is that, like the the fundamental basics in most cases, like if you followed the advice of the mainstream institutions, they are things like stay socially distanced, wear masks for the vast majority of the pandemic, right? Wear masks, get vaccinated. Mm. That's it, right? Yeah. The 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 kind of cores and all this stuff about you know the the correct time for school openings or the appropriate time for quarantines after exposure and so on. There are differences of opinion. Yeah, but... Well, yeah, but I mean, the... like, those are all
3: legitimate questions, right? I fully support people having, you know, expressing whatever opinion they may.
0: So, it used to be that the role of medicine was to treat six people. So, before 1940, the major function of medicine was to diagnose disease. But the therapies at hand were hardly impressive. Now, during the latter half of the 20th century, there's been this dramatic perceptual transformation. So... The World Health Organization promulgated in 1946 that health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease. So this definition implies new roles for medical profession. Care and treatment of the sick and the infirm, yeah, that's still part of the doctor's responsibility, but to this were added the functions of making people happy, healthy, and socially well-adjusted, right? Health, physical, mental, social, is normal, guys. So sickness, disease, and distress... Not normal, not inevitable. They're a pathology. They result from you know, these various external determinants. So, the role of medicine has come to persuade people to engage in healthy behavior and to avoid the consequences of inappropriate behaviors that result in disease and death. So, medicine has the knowledge to create for us a d- disease free society. Uh, treatment, care, cure, prevention, early part of the new face of medicine. Now we get claims that its members by employing science, has the power to improve upon nature. We can enhance brain functioning. We can increase stature. We can arrest aging, guys. We can increase longevity. We can alleviate anxiety. We can create desirable character traits. We can maintain high levels of sexual activity. We can reshape our bodies. The whole criteria for normality has changed. Traditionally accepted levels of blood pressure, cholesterol, glucose have been revised sharply downward, thus increasing the percentage of the population at risk. You don't want to be at risk, elevating the rationale for pharmaceutical and medical intervention. We've got scientists, clinicians, pharmaceutical companies promoting a variety of interventions, including drugs and surgery that will presumably enhance both our physical and mental well-being. Even those who are presumably healthy. Disease can be prevented and conquered. Nature can be improved upon. All things are possible. Human beings have it within their power to control completely their own destiny. We can expect lifespans of 130 years or more. Disease remains the enemy of humanity. Only a war can make it vanish. So descriptions of cancer are phrased in terms of war. Cancer cells do not simply multiply. They are invasive. They colonize. They establish tiny outposts. Medical treatment, right? radiotherapy, aerial warfare. Patients are bombarded with toxic rays. Chemotherapy is chemical warfare. Healthy cells are harmed or destroyed. That's simply friendly fire. It's just collateral damage, guys. The war on cancer must be fought to the finish. The only acceptable outcome is unconditional surrender. Mental health policy has similarly come to emphasize aggressive programs of screening for untreated mental disorders in primary medical care schools and the workplace. I go to the doctor and they ask me, do you have a gun at home? It's, it's a medical matter. Disease, it's, it's now unnatural. It can be prevented. It can be conquered. But this rests on a fundamental misunderstanding of the biological world. If cancer is the enemy, then we are the enemy. Malignant cells are hardly alien to invade our bodies. They arise from our own normal cells. The biological world of which we are a part includes millions of microorganisms. Some are harmless, some are parasitic, some have the potential to cause infection. Others play vital symbiotic roles that nourish and maintain life. Some microorganisms contribute to soil fertility by converting plant debris into humus, which, while others microorganisms, destroy crops. Efforts to destroy pathogenic microorganisms through drugs are doomed to failure because their ability to develop resistant properties, which then pose even greater dangers. In the realm of mental health, natural psychological emotions such as sadness and fear, now considered to be pathologies. They're depressive and anxiety disorders that psychotropic drugs can suppress. So, threats to health, guys, are inescapable accompaniments of life. Disease will change its manifestations according to circumstances. Disease will be always with us like poor people and stupid people. That disease can be prevented in general or conquered is as much an illusion as Ponce de Leon's search for the ubiquitous fountain of youth. Think about AIDS, guys. Contemporary medical science cannot cure or explain the etiology of many of the long-duration illnesses that account for the bulk of mortality. Plated rhetorical claims to the contrary, the etiology of most of our major diseases of our age, such as heart disease, cancer, diabetes, mental illness, remains shrouded in mystery. These intractable diseases reflect an extremely complex mixture of nature and nurture set against the background of aging, which itself may be modified by both genes and environment. They are likely to have multiple causes. There may be many different routes to their pathology. So this belief that the conquest of disease and the creation of a happy and well-adjusted society are realistic goals dominates the American public. The debate over how to provide universal coverage for healthcare or find ways of limiting healthcare expenditures does not contradict our faith in the redemptive authority of medicine. We've got all these groups, including the medical profession, the pharmaceutical industry, fueling, subsidizing this faith. They benefit by promoting the pursuit of health medical profession because it strengthens its legitimacy and its claim on resources and status. Pharmaceutical industry because it enhances sales of drugs. The media, both visual and print, contributes to the faith in medical progress by providing coverage of alleged therapeutic breakthroughs and new ways of preventing disease, yet reality belies appearance. The appearance of the AIDS epidemic contradicted the belief that infectious diseases no longer posed a significant threat. May
3: have... So I'm all for heterodoxy of opinion. I guess what we're talking about is what seems like a detectable bias, a bias of the heterodox towards a certain kind of take, which is more, is going to Extreme. appeal to to Joe Rogan type audiences. And I think specifically um, and pragmatically appealing to these bigger figures so that you can align yourself with them, go under their
2: wing. Look, if your sense making apparatus cannot detect the conspiratorial undertones in the content of Robert Malone, Peter McCulloch, and Brett Weinstein, you, your sense making apparatus is faulty and it's not correctly detecting conspiracy theorists and anti vax sentiment. So that's yeah. my general.
0: So Half Galician says, I sent him a deaf note doubling up today. Now, what happened is this morning, I hardly slept last night because I stayed up late watching. The end of of, of Ozark, like uh, part four, part one, part one of part four. So I finally finished Ozark at about one o'clock this morning. Only got a, It feels like a couple of hours of sleep and I had some important things going on this morning. So I took a whole bunch of matcha tea, like filled with caffeine and added some L-theanine to, you know, increase the length of the caffeine kick. And here I am, streaming for hours. Bruce notes, We can expect to never have a negative thought for the rest of our lives. We shall medicate away all suffering from our lives. What will remain will no longer be human. All disease is due to fapping. No fap, live forever. When I stopped fapping, my age went down to 20. Luke's learning that all the BS he was told about eating meat and psychedelics was just that. Luke, hurry up and say something funny. Luke's doing an experimental show like Roth's Operation Shylock. Not everyone's a fan. <laughs> has Jim Goad been sucking from the fountain of youth? Jim Goad, guys, is an alpha male. Yeah, my IQ went to 200 due to no fap. Many good men has been lost to alpha <laughs> <You need> independence. Khan, <laughs> don't you love this book, Diagnosis, Therapy, and Evidence? So we've got drug therapy to control the AIDS disease and we've got the development of vaccines to prevent the disease. Well, no, we don't have a development of a vaccine to prevent AIDS. Other viral diseases remain a source of concern, especially since ocean and distance no longer serve as protective impediments to the dissemination of older new microorganisms. Influenza in particular remains a large, large threat because the virus is constantly undergoing genetic reassortment. Normally, only the reassortment is between an animal and human influenza virus, but on occasion there is direct transmission of an influenza virus from animal and avian species to humans. The 1918 Spanish flu pandemic is one such example. During that pandemic, mortality reached unprecedented levels, killed as many as 20 to 40 million people around the world. So the ability of microorganisms to develop resistance to medications is omnipresent. Many medical therapies and drugs are not without risks. Anesthesia, surgery, sophisticated diagnostic procedures even when competently undertaken, have the potential to induce illness. Maybe up to a third, perhaps five to ten percent of patients admitted to acute care hospitals acquire one or more infections, and the risk seems to be increasing. Such adverse effects events affect as many as two million patients a resort in some ninety thousand deaths. Catheter-related bloodstream infections in intensive care units. Cause about 28,000 deaths each year. About 100,000 Americans die each year as a result of medical errors. Right? Between 44,000 and 100,000 Americans die each year as a result of medical errors, according to the study by the Institute of Medicine of the National Academies of Sciences. Medication errors in hospitals and community settings cause massive problems. Many common surgical procedures have significant risks. Study of patients undergoing coronary artery bypass found that only 12% showed no decline across eight cognitive domains studied. Children and adolescents who take antidepressants report higher rates of uh, suicidal ideation and behavior compared to those who received placebos. So we do have medical treatment for many long-duration illnesses that have improved the quality and length of life. And the threat of infectious diseases as a major cause of mortality has diminished sharply.
2: thing is, you know, whatever your opinion of the CDC, the WHO, or whatever organization, whatever institution, whatever public health body, that's one thing. But if you're not identifying what the problem is with the figures that are like become luminaries in the heterodox sphere, your bullshit detector is miscalibrated. That's all. Yeah. That's all. That's all.
3: That's it. That's all. That's all. That's all have whatever opinion you like about school openings that's not that's yeah. that's fine Gromito.
0: Gr- okay that's it bye bye